I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic. <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Kareek Sage, coming to you live from New York City. Bennett, our dynamic producer in our nation's capital, will cut this one up. And I'm very curious to see what he does with it because this is a hell of an episode. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in and let you know who we got tonight. After a zillion years of talking about it, I just finally made it happen. And... Tonight's guest is Marty Dobrow. Marty Dobrow, as I mentioned at the outset of our interview, quite literally wrote the book on UMass basketball. He wrote the book Going Big Time, uh, which chronicled UMass's rise in the 90s. It's a fantastic book. Marty is a first-rate writer and even more of a first-rate person. He is just a class act, one of the most humble, understated reporters, writers you'll ever meet. He runs the journalism uh, program at Springfield College now. Anyone who's ever been a student of his says just, he's just a first-rate human being. I mean, there's not, I mean, I've known Marty for, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 years, something like that. And just from in and around the area. And he's just a great guy and is it's never about him. It's always about the story. And that's something that very few journalists can truly say. Many aspire to that standard. Very few achieve it. Marty is one. And I think he he's just a deep dude. And you're going to like it. And we really went down memory lane tonight in a way I think, I hope, that transcends the generic usual talk about the past moments. I think there's some new stories here about UMass basketball of the mid nineties that I think go into people's psychology a little that I think go into, I mean, we dish, you know, we, we dish on a lot of different topics and I hope you enjoy it. A few moments where the audio is not flawless, but it's pretty good, especially by the standards of yours truly, which admittedly are quite low. That being said, uh, I think we'll do it in two parts. I don't know. Bennett, what do you think? Before we get to that, a couple show notes. Show is, of course, as always, brought to you by our outstanding sponsor, Five College Movers, friends of UMass Basketball, friends of this podcast, friends of UMass Athletics. Critically important that we're supporting local business in this time. Uh, these are difficult times for everyone. Five College Movers remains open. They're taking all of the important safety precautions, and they will still take your business. So if you're looking to move and you want to do so stress-free, call Five College Movers. Pat and the gang will take care of you. World class. Pioneer Valley and beyond. Don't go elsewhere. Go Five College. All right. Other show notes. Or not show notes, but just kind of program notes and things about UMass Hoops in the offseason. Big news today. I should actually say yesterday because it's, I'm currently recording this at 1.09 a.m. By the way, Marty and I wrapped up around 11.20. It's like two, we went like two hours. 
and I was on such a high after that interview that I haven't even recorded the intro until now. I've just been chirping on Twitter and just kind of fired up. Tomorrow's going to be a rough day with two kids here in quarantine. Um, so here's a couple things on the, on UMass Hoops. Big news today, Ronnie DeGray, another product of Woodstock Academy, Tony Bergeron's former uh, program, signed with UMass. A lot of people kind of knew this was coming, but it's great news regardless and I'm going to just come out and say it, Ronnie DeGray will compete for a starting job right away. Not only does he have the combination of attributes that we're looking for in our final starter, which is kind of a combo three slash four man who can shoot it, who's strong, who can rebound, who can pass well, Um, but he's also more experienced than I think people realize. He's going to turn 20 in December. He is. He did an extra year at Woodstock. He may be older than Trey Mitchell, interestingly enough. Uh, Trey's really young, and I think graduated. You know, I don't think basically. I don't think he did a post grad year at Woodstock, so he he may be actually younger than DeGray. DeGray is a kid who, from the second I started watching his tape, it was clear to me as it is to other folks who I trust around the basketball world, that this is a high major kid, like a very high major kid with a weird ass looking shot, a shot, by the way, that goes in a lot. Think of it as a Trey Davis looking shot. So if you were, if you watch Trey Davis, who graduated what, 2016? Shout out, I, shout out, I call the plug like hello. Um, actually, Bennett, throw in some I Call the Plug Like Hello right now. Trey, Trey Davis's uh, dynamic rap song that he released just after his senior season that features, I believe, Marcus Smart. Uh, that being said, DeGray has all the skills and strength and size to play, not anywhere, but like a lot of power fives. And he had... I think he had Oklahoma State in the mix. I think he had Arkansas in the mix, Washington State. There's a bunch of good programs who wanted him at one point or another. I think some backed away because they probably sensed he might have gone to UMass. But, like, make no mistake, he, he had some legit offers. DeGray does everything right when you watch him play, except he has a weird-ass-looking shot. So, but it goes in. Like, he has that really weird, like, hitch to his shot where he kind of shoots it from his waist almost. Um... There's really nothing else about his game that I can kind of critique. I, I mean, he's versatile. He can, he'll be great in the press. So he, DeAndre Dominguez, and I think, he's, is he another lefty? Holy shit, is he another? No, I don't think he is. He, DeAndre Dominguez, and Debaji Walker, I think, will compete for the four spot. But a lot of the times, I think we'll see different starting lineups on this team. And those three guys, you know, like two of them may be in the lineup some nights. One of them may be in the starting lineup other nights. It depends, I think, on what you do at the one. I think the only guys I'm slotting in as definitive starters right now, and and this may not be with the coaching staff things, but just in my delusional brain, Javon Garcia and... Trey Mitchell. Those are my two lockdown starters. I think Javon will start virtually every game in the same way that, as a freshman, in the same way that Trey did 
uh, his, this past year. He's just too good to keep off the floor. Like, I watch the kids tape. You'll understand what I'm saying in five seconds. He's really fucking good. And I think he's basically your point guard. Um, I know he's seen as a combo guard, whatever. There's some people who are like, oh, I'm concerned. We need a true point guard. And, like, I get that. And I think Noah Fernandez, if he's eligible, that's a concern of mine right now because the NCAA is saying they may not vote on that immediate eligibility situation uh, the one-time immediate eligibility transfer situation until next year now, which is very concerning to me because I thought he was coming here as a ready-to-play immediately guy, and when Shawnee's left, I wasn't concerned because I was like, oh, well, we have Noah Fernandez from Wichita State, who's really legit. If that is not the case, well, then Javon Garcia goes from being like a 26, 27-minute game guy to like a 37-minute game guy because you just don't have I mean Colton Mitchell's gonna would play a lot too, but because Javon can play either guard spot, then you really can't keep him off the floor. I think though that because of the transfer situation at Wichita State where like seven or eight dudes left and it was very strange, he may get a waiver and be able to play right away. That's my hope. If that is the case, I think there'll be a lot of instances, particularly against a team like Richmond, where they have some small guards, some spiders, if you will. <laughs> get it? Uh, I think you'll see those two together a lot, and then Trey as your five, and then your your three four guy. There's a number of directions you could go, right? Because you could go with Carl and TJ if you want two shooters, two like lights out, you know, potentially lights out kind of guys. At least one of them will be hot. The one that's not, you pull quickly, and then you go, you know. And so, so if you had those two plus those two guards and then Trey. Well, now you're playing small and and you're playing a little less physical, so I don't know how common that's going to be, but it can be done. Um, but again, my starters, you know, the only two that you definitively slot in are Javon and Trey, because I think you, you obviously have a dominant five in Trey and, and you, you, you have a fantastic guard who can play the one and, and, and or the two, and he's just got to be on the floor because he can score. It's the kind of guy who we didn't have this past year when, when a play breaks down. Um, and by the way, check out Charlie Neissner's podcast with Tony Bergeron. He touches on this a little bit, but he touches on how when Trey, excuse me, when Javon, when a play breaks down, this pa- when a play broke down this past year, we didn't have a guard who could just go get a bucket. I said it all year on the podcast. I said it every episode. I was like, we just don't have guards who can score off the dribble. We just don't. And Javon Garcia is that guy and then some. So he's going to be on the floor because when there's eight seconds on the shot clock, as Tony was alluding to yesterday, he's going to get you a bucket or at least get in the lane and make something happen. Dump it off to Trey, kick it out to uh, TJ, whatever. So I think you can't keep TJ off the floor provided he's fully healthy. I think he's got to be a starter. Uh, That'd be my third guy. After that, there's absolutely no. I mean, I, there's there's legitimately another seven, maybe eight dudes who could start. Like you're talking about a depth that is without precedent in the recent history of UMass basketball. A depth that is so good it is actually a concern for some fans and a legitimate one at that. Some have asked me, well, are you concerned about that? You know, is it, how are they going to stick with the rotation? Not really. Number one, I think that there's always going to be somebody's going to get hurt or, you know, something happens. There's always something that happens. 
Bugs won't be fully back, I don't think, to start the year by any means. He, he's got a brutal knee injury. So you're already down to 12 there. Um, we don't know the Fernandez situation yet. Uh, so, you know, technically you're at 11. Um, somebody will have an academic issue, will get caught smoking pot, will, we'll, you know, have a, you know, lose a parent to COVID. Fucked up shit happens in life. Like, I, I don't mean to say that crassly. I'm just saying there's always, anyone who's been following this program knows that, in any program, knows that there's an extenuating circumstance every single year. And, it, you know, or a brutal injury. Like this year, how many injuries did we have? We had, at one point, we had, I mean, over the course of the year, I mean, DeGiri missed a bunch of games at the end. Colton and Bugs were both injured for a while at the beginning. Debaji wasn't re- cleared by the NCAA until late December. I mean, there's just always shit. If there's not, and even if there is and you still have a lot of depth, that's where Bergeron excels. First of all, eight of these kids, eight of these kids came to play for him at his previous stop, and Garcia, I believe, was set to go there until Tony left for UMass, and then he came elsewhere. Colton Mitchell was a Bergeron recruit through some other outlets, I believe. Um, oh, and by the way, what I didn't mention, I don't think, is that we just signed Mark Gasparini last week after I did the show. Mark Gasparini is among the pickups I'm most excited about. He Here's a kid who would start at a lot of A-10 schools. Fifth, fourth year senior. He's going to be getting a master's in accounting. He's a big-ass dude from the state. Came back from American University. Over three years there, averaged 10-plus, six boards. Like, really legit big man. A-10 big man. Like, would absolutely start at, I mean, would absolutely start at Fordham, at LaSalle, George Mason, maybe GW. He's a good player. Fourth year guy. He's going to be Trey's backup. That allows Trey to do a lot more defensively in terms of risking, you know, things in terms of fouls and us not having to freak out when he's out. But he'll be he can be a 10 minute game guy. So, you know, uh, and Colton is great in the press anyway. But if he's a 10 minute game guy, you know, you have 10 guys who Tony Bergeron will like. In other words, so I, I got a little roundabout answer here. That's where Bergeron excels. He is transparent with these kids when he's recruiting them because he recruited them at Woodstock, and they all play there. He is going – I would expect this team to press for basically 40 minutes next year. And why will it be different? Well, I think he said it best, but the reality is we didn't have the depth last year, and you can't press with the intensity he wants to press if you don't have that kind of depth. So I fully expect um, Bergeron to be good in that situation. And look, if there's a guy who's not fully bought in or two guys or whatever, like you can win, you can endure, I think, one or two uh, who are not fully bought in. But even so, maybe a guy leaves midseason like shit happens, you know, um, I'm not terribly concerned about that. Someone else raised the question. I promise I'd touch on it. This is in, in a, they raised it was just going around Twitter a lot and. They basically were like, are you, you know, is there a concern that when Bergeron's connections wane at um, Woodstock, we're not going to be getting these kind of players anymore? So I reject the premise. And look, it's funny because whenever there's one of these things with Bergeron, Bergeron has like 50 dudes from around the basketball world, plus a lot of our fans, yours truly among them at times, 
who jumped down whoever's neck has leveled a modest criticism and just goes like all in like the guy <laughs> the guy does not ignore the guy and his loyalists I should say yours truly among them at times do not ignore even the most modest of slights it's kind of the thing I like most about Tony is like he just he's just relentless in defending his philosophy and and just never backing down from a fight to the point that when I ha- do speak with Tony on occasion I, I almost jokingly counsel him like just let it go like sometimes just let it go who fucking cares it's like somebody on Twitter is saying something who cares but it's also what I respect about him if that makes sense because it's just like he lets nothing go um, but the premise of the question is I think I understand it but I think it's it's incorrect because it assumes that your well has gone dry because you've already brought all those kids over. In fact, you could make a case it's actually the opposite, that in a certain sense, those are the kids that are um, a little bit easier to get that he's going after now because he wants to quickly solidify things and they're already kind of loyal to him and know him. And he wants to do the, the, the certain thing quickly. But Tony's connections and what allowed him to get those kids to Woodstock in the first place are what you're in part what you're bringing him to UMass for. He knows people all around the country. They send him kids at Woodstock because they know he has a good reputation for developing talent and sending kids to top schools. Um, so, in fact, I think we're going to be in the mix for even kind of higher, maybe even higher tier kids in the coming years, partly because I think we're going to start winning and that's going to attract more talent. And partly because I think Bergeron's connections are all over the place and there'll be transfers who come down who are like, you know, they go to power five and they don't have the same, you know, playing time or, or whatever it is. And they're just like, I hear this guy's good. I'll go there. Uh, and also, I just think that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, yeah, so I don't even know what I think. I think that that's not my concern right now. Uh, that's just not it. I mean, he brought eight dudes and he had to, you know, recruit them to high school too. So they, it obviously shows that they like playing for him so he can form those relationships. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, there, there was more to this, but, but yeah, so really excited for this Marty interview two part one part whatever Bennett tries to, decides to do with it it was such a uh, such an honor to have him on the show he's someone I've, I've just uh, admired for a long time and is really a first rate person check him out I think he's at Marty Dobrow on Twitter you'll, you'll find him we'll put it in the show notes or the or the link and um, yeah enjoy the show let us know what you think share it spread the word and uh, hope everybody's hanging in there during this pandemic we'll try to have some more content for you soon Thanks so much, and uh, enjoy the show. First Final Four in the history of the Portland. Now, that's got to make one man proud. That was Julius Irving. Celebrating in Amherst because UMass has gone on to beat Georgetown. So... There's a lot of directions we could go with tonight's guest. I've been trying to have him on the show for a while, 
now is a good time, I think, because we're approaching the 25th anniversary of the final four year and coming off the anniversary of the 95 Elite Eight season. It's crazy. It's been 25 years. And our guest literally wrote the book on that era. Title, of course, Going Big Time. The preview for tonight's show on Twitter, I was telling people uh, it's a big time guest. And I, I actually at first said that purely unintentionally. And then I realized, oh, this is that's actually a, a fun little pun. And you covered the team for the Daily Hampshire Gazette from when to when, Marty? Well, Sage, I was on the beat, I guess, full time from like 90. 1 and 92 through the 97 season. I did a little bit before then, um, but yeah, I, I timed it kind of exquisitely. Uh, you know, Milt Cole had been the beat writer at the, the Gazette. He was getting old. Uh, it was difficult for him to travel as much. And so I stepped in. I did some, I think, in 90, 91. Um, started to do a lot in 92. I don't think I did was full time on it in 92, but definitely the 92, 93 season forward. Uh, those, all those, the rest of the Calipari years, I was on it full time, which was, was kind of ideal and, and extremely, extremely fortunate for me. So you were not there during the, like, were you at the Gazette during the Calipari hire? I was actually in graduate school at UMass uh, doing a master's during his first year. And so I went to a number of those games um, just as a fan that year, his first year. And it, that was a fascinating year. You could certainly sense, you know, his enormous passion. It was all passion, no polish. Uh, you know, he was just enraged at how s- sort of small time UMass basketball was, how little the fans expected. Uh, there were just some incredible moments in that first year to sort of see him exhorting the fans, exhorting the players, demanding a, you know, a level of intensity that just was not part of the program and hadn't been for a long time because they had 10 straight losing seasons prior to his arrival. That was the 11th. Um, the story, you know, I was very happy to revisit it in my book, but that first season the number of things that, that happened. I mean, the legendary story of the the first game is the scoreboard, you know, catches fire. They have to keep score by flip charts in the first game. You know, the, the time that he had three players on that team, uh, including two captains who were caught at 4 a.m. on the day before a game uh, by the Hadley police on a breaking and entering and then were caught by foot uh, from Hadley Police shows you what kind of shape they were in. Um, so just you know, I mean, a lot of things that just were not were not going well. And, uh, <laughs> so they were out, so basically these twenty year old Division One athletes were outrun by the Hadley Police Department. That is correct. So yeah, <laughs> it's bleak. It's so, bleak. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was it was not a good scene. And uh, you know, I mean, Cal was just intolerant of this. There was, of course. You know, the, the loss at GW, when GW, I think, had one win the entire season. It was against UMass. They won huge, 103-77, if I'm remembering correctly. We'll have to check with George Miller. But uh, they, that's, this was a game, I think the final game of the season, fans down in, in Washington just taunting Calipari, and Calipari just so outraged, whips his, 
his tie off, his coat, flings it into the crowd, you know, gets these, these technicals, they're giving him a standing ovation. It just was, uh, you know, so far from where it needed to be. But in watching some of those games, you could kind of see that he was either going to burn out immediately or he was going to elevate this team in a hurry. And it was, it was obviously the latter that happened. So when you're watching those games at that point, you're not even a journalism grad student? Because UMass doesn't have a journalism. No, right. no, I was not. Yeah, I was in a counseling psychology program, which might have been the perfect grad program for then covering John Calipari later. Um, but it's, yeah, I was, and I went back in the year after that. I was teaching part-time at Amherst Regional High School, teaching English, three classes, and then got a job part-time at the Gazette covering high school sports and I just loved it I just found like boy I had this writing Jones for a long time and there was just something about getting in underneath these local stories that just spoke deeply to me and I didn't really get to cover much I think you know one or two UMass things that first year but then after that more and more I got hired full-time the next year at the Gazette and uh you know, was able to step into the UMass beat really at, at just the ideal time. And it was, it was pure luck. And then also pure luck because I got to, you know, cover John Calipari when he really needed the media. I was the closest person to what was happening. I wound up going to a lot of practices. You know, in time I would arrange my, my travel so that I would be on the same flights as the team, I would be in the same hotels, not as a stalker, but realizing that I just wanted to cultivate good relationships, that these were interesting people, and they were kind of bored when they were traveling at 30,000 feet. You get some good stuff from people, and, and all of that kind of went into the soup uh, years later of going big time. So so how did you, when just, just in getting to the Gazette, you're, you're doing counseling psychology program you like writing you you got you sort of reached out about doing some freelance sports coverage and it just kind of evolved from there basically more or less i mean it was interesting i mean i'd always had a passion for writing and sports i had done you know done that from very young days i mean it was my you know high school newspaper wrote a sports column for my weekly sports column for my uh, local hometown paper uh, this is in the late 1970s, wrote for my college papers when I was at Duke as a freshman and then in, at Wesleyan for the next three years. Oh, I didn't realize you ever went to Duke. I, I, always, I just thought of you as a Wesleyan grad. Yeah, no, I was, was at Duke. For, that was when I really got, I think, into college basketball because this was a year, it was the last year of Bill Foster's coaching. So you basically left Duke the second, right before Coach K came. Exactly. And so, in fact, it was so interesting. Was there, I think they were preseason number one that year that I was there. And it was so exciting going to these games at Cameron Indoor Stadium, having that this bizarre sensation of screaming at the top of your lungs and not being able to hear your own voice and just, just getting a sense of how passionate people were about it. And so I began writing a lot for the Duke Chronicle. I wasn't obviously covering men's basketball as a freshman, but I got to cover a bunch of sports and really got interested in it wound up then transferring after that to be closer to home and was at Wesleyan my next three years and did some you know, bunch of writing for the, the Wesleyan paper and then the you know, Argus is it the Argus 
I was, uh, you know, high school teaching and then into this counseling psych program. But all the while, you know, the, the kind of writing momentum was building. And, uh, you know, I just got a good break at the Gazette and a huge break in being able to cover UMass basketball. I such an interesting time. But you were doing like two years of, of freelance high school stuff before you fully were on the UMass beat? I think the first year was, you know, I had was working, I got a halftime job at the Gazette when I was also teaching halftime. And that was, I believe, the 89-90 school year. Got it. I was hired full-time 1990 and mostly covering high schools, although got to do some UMass stuff and really was, became very interested in, in the team and got to be, you know, second on the beat for a few, a few games and, uh, just began increasingly to get involved with it and the team obviously i mean you know calipari's second year which was the 89 90 year was their first winning season in a dozen years and they began to get really good and obviously the breakthrough year was 91 92 and that was you know the year they won 30 games and got to the sweet 16 and you know that legendary game against Kentucky and Patino and then stepping out of the coaching box famous famous game in, in UMass annals and so I was doing more coverage there although I wasn't the number one person on the beat even then it was the following year 92-93 where I really uh, was able to, to take over and have it be my own thing and it was it was just a, a great fascinating rich life experience how, how long into covering the team did you get a sense that what you were walking into could ultimately be something that would, you know, in later years ultimately be seen as quite historic? Well, what was interesting, what began to dawn on me is I, you know, the more I, you, you start to cover something, the more you look into it, you begin to see certain things. And I, I was just really interested in UMass historically like what was this you know I knew obviously that the game of basketball was from this area was you know developed in Springfield you know just down the road from UMass I knew that UMass had had Julius Irving in its past and Rick Pitino and I began to look into those teams got to know Jack Lehman who was just such a prince of a man and began to really kind of get the sense that the UMass basketball story was a deeper story than just one basketball team. And increasingly, as the team became very good, I saw that it, you know, it, it became a lens that would show in time uh, what college basketball was really all about in some sense, that what was great about it, what was dangerous about it. And I think that the, the title going big time for the book I mean, to me, what this is really represents is that there are there are pros and cons of a rise to the top in college sports, that there, there is a loss of innocence that comes with it. There are some precious things that are lost, but also just some glorious and, you know, exhilarating moments. And I think the UMass story ultimately became such a great case study for the best and the worst of college sports. Did, did you know... I mean, 9293, you're not thinking, okay, there's a book here, or maybe you are. You, so you'd cover, the, the, the Going Big Time comes out 
if I'm not mistaken, and I got to tell you, I reordered it recently. I haven't read it in full since I was very young, but I, I have it at my parents' house, and so I had to reorder it, and it's it's set to get here the next couple of days. It's currently in like Yorktown, Pennsylvania, at a shipping <laughs> facility. Um, but because uh, I wanted to reread it before you came on, because I actually looked to see if there was an audio book version or uh, ebook, and I don't think it is available in maybe ebook. It was available, but not audiobook unfortunately so if you want to go back and do the you know try to re- get a reprinted version here in the 25th that's the way to do it those other formats yeah so but was it was it um was it it came out like at the kind of not long after cal right after cal perry left if i remember correctly right that is correct i mean i was working on it you know over a course of some years and without a sense of urgency necessarily i mean it was you know it was still had a you know, pretty demanding job at the Gazette and was, was you just get two weeks off a year there and you're asked to do a lot at a small town paper but when you're on the road with the team you sometimes have some time and I just, just became increasingly aware that this was an interesting story, that Calipari was a fascinating guy, that this was someone who was was kind of brilliant, was gifted at getting people to work unbelievably hard and to convince them of a level of effort that is was astonishing, way above and beyond, I think, what most college coaches are able to elicit from from their players. And that also that there was, you know, parts about him that people found to be, you know, kind of ruthless and that there was no in-between with Calipari, that there were people who absolutely worshipped him, there were people who despised him, and again, I got him at an early point when there were not many media who were on the scene. I was able to write a number of feature stories at the Gazette that were deep-dive profiles into the players, into their backgrounds, their families, I did a two-part series called The Making of John Calipari that I think was, was maybe in 93 or 94, where you know I spoke to his parents and his sisters and his wife and, and you know, high school friends and, you know, tried to, to get in underneath what life was like for him growing up in Moon Township, Pennsylvania, you know, what happened, why his time as a college basketball player was so disillusioning down at UNC Wilmington, you know, and then playing, you know, continuing his career at Clarion, what it was like in his very early days of, of coaching at, you know, first at Kansas. And he allowed me a high level of access that I don't think that any writer has had since. And it wasn't anything great that I was bringing to the table. It was just that I happened to be there as he was on the way up and I was in the right place at the right time. So you're you're sort of toying with this a year, two, two and a half years before you actually sort of say, okay, I got to get a publisher and an agent and whatever you do to publish a book. It, like it's it's in the back of your mind as a as a as a project that, you know, you this could go somewhere. Fair Absolutely. to say? Yeah, it became, you know, just and also because I you know, I think that some of the players who are coming through the program just had such interesting stories that these were, uh, you know, people whose whose life journeys were kind of fascinating to me as I as I got to to know, you know, 
people pretty well. And, and some of these families, I mean, people like Edgar Padilla in particular was someone who I just so admired. I mean, this is such an interesting life journey. Two deaf parents, you know, you try to imagine what that's like as a kid. You know, you're crying as a young child. Your parents can't hear you. How do you even acquire speech when your parents are deaf? Uh, you know, they're in Puerto Rico. They come up to the States. Edgar doesn't really want to come. His older sister, Millie, get a job in, in, in Springfield and convince the employers. They'll say, you know, I want you to hire my mom and my dad. They can't speak. They can't hear. But nobody's going to work harder. And uh, they just claw their way up in such an American dream sort of way. And I just, I just love these stories. Tyrone Weeks, you know, in West Philadelphia and his, you know, met his dad like once and his dad was in jail. His mom was addicted to crack. He was in and out of a lot of different homes. He took the SAT something like a dozen times. A lot of people, you know, maybe from the outside would say, boy, this is someone who doesn't belong in college basketball. UMass is just exploiting someone for their, their talent. You know, but you look at his life situation and the schools that he was in and how, you know, how turbulent his upbringing was. It was pretty clear as I'm sitting talking to Tyrone Weeks at UMass and getting to know him. This is a really smart young man who's just had no opportunities. And given, you know, the safety net at UMass and some tutoring, he did well, got his degree, went for his master's. You know, he and his wife have raised, you know, really impressive family, one of whom is, is playing at UMass right now. So these, these stories I just found kind of irresistible, and I, I felt like there might be a really good book in this. I also thought historically some of the interesting stuff, I mean, Julius's story, like the time that he was at UMass was so fascinating. You know, one of the greatest players, I mean, I'd say one of the 10 greatest players in the history of the game that he would come to UMass at all, so interesting and all the racial tension at UMass in the 60s and early 70s, fascinating. Uh, Rick Pitino, his time at UMass, absolutely fascinating, signing his letter of intent while at Madison Square Garden, you know, as a high school player, dreaming of playing with Julius. He was a couple years behind Julius. Freshmen were ineligible to play as, you know, varsity basketball at that point, so he played on the freshman team with Al Skinner, while Julius was a junior, they'd race out onto the court after the freshman game and they'd watch Irving soaring above the rim, not allowed to dunk back then. And then Julius left to go to the ABA. And Patino becomes eligible as a sophomore and immediately gets kicked off the team for the entire season of his sophomore year for breaking the thumb of the incumbent starting point guard because he thought it was his birthright to, to start. Fascinating stuff. And it just, it just felt to me like, boy, there are, these are good stories. This would make a good book. Was so I, I didn't remember that story about Patino. Was he resistant? Like that's this got me off track here. But this is a good thing, a good little yarn to follow. Was Patino? Um, so he misses his entire sophomore season. He returns, and was that a story that, like, when you were writing this? that he was reluctant to share or, or, I mean, like, how did you get some of these yarns uh, to, to ultimately come out? I presume Rick himself was not giving you access. Well, I, I did speak to Rick, um, but that was not the initial source. Uh, what happens actually was going 
down into the basement of the tower library there, the famous one where the bricks once flew, and got looking up old microfilm of the Collegian and looking at stories of games way back when and seeing that, in fact, there is Rick Pitino getting kicked off and being, I think that the quote from Jack Lehman, I know I have it in the book, and this, is, this may not be verbatim accurate in memory, but something to the effect of he cared too much about himself and not about the other 11 guys on the team. And so Jack Lehman, who was a real by-the-book taskmaster type of coach, just was insistent that Patino, you know, get with the plan and get with the system. Patino looked to transfer. I don't think he had good options. He had to sort of suck it up for one year. He did come back. He was a productive, uh, a good point guard for Jack Lehman for his last two years. Uh, I chortled during the final four year for UMass in 95-96, where, of course, Patino and Calipari, I mean, that became this big showdown because those two teams played once at the beginning of the year and once at the end of the year, both quite dramatic moments. Uh, and so I got a chance to look at the University of Kentucky uh, media guide, which claimed during that year that Patino had averaged something like 25 point something points per game at UMass. Nowhere close to true. I think it was something like five points a game or something like that. <laughs> it's amazing because because in today's era, like, I think some of our younger listeners, and I mean, they say people born my year, this is a strange aside, but they say people born in 1985 are the last people to remember a fully non, basically a fully non-digital world. Like, I, I got the internet, some friends had it before me when they were 10, 11, I got it at 13, so... I was still like a newspaper kid for much of my youth, but the point is plagiarism accusations at that time, now it's it's just so easy to disprove those things, it, you know, and it's you would never even ponder that. And you've seen so many cases in the internet era of people getting nabbed so quickly. But instances like that uh, were so common back then that like it, it's not as egregious in retro like in retrospect if you're if you're but if you're under 30 and you hear that story you're like how could anyone even have pondered that like it's on the tape is on YouTube the, you know there's a million ways of, of getting this and I just I just love that because it also perhaps I don't want to be presumptuous but speaks to Patino has always had a, an uh, outsized sense of self. Um, and it's probably, uh, in many ways helped him professionally. It's also gotten him into some trouble and you could, I don't, I'm not a psychologist, but you could talk about impulsivity and, and sense of, uh, sense of, of control at points. But that's just a wild story that he, that, that, that somehow made it in there. Like, I, I love that anecdote. So it's, it's, I mean, Patino plays a fascinating role in this book and in UMass history. And of course with, you know, his his very double-edged relationship with with John Calipari. To me, one of the most fascinating moments after all of this was at the Final Four. And, you know, we're having this conversation on the night when the national championship game for this year, 2020, would have been played. And the, um, the in 1996, obviously the year UMass went to the Final Four, uh, unbelievable season, as we all know, if, if, if we were there. I mean, just historic in every way. UMass 
you know, starts out, beats Kentucky to start the season memorably. In Detroit. One team in the nation. At, you know, goes out 27-0, and makes a, you know, a run for the only undece- undefeated season. 20, 26, well, 26 while I have you here, Marty. I hate to. 26? 26. Right. They lost to GW, and that, that moved him to 26-1. and one. All right. Thank you for the correction. 26. Yeah, <laughs> famous loss to GW in Calipari got kicked out. Uh, and it was, you know, it was just this monumentally fascinating season with all of this drama. And Camby collapses before one game, and, you know, Calipari is off in the ambulance. They go to the hospital together. I mean, just drama after drama after drama and uh you know then as you said they lose to gw they regroup they get through to the final four for the first time and there they go up against kentucky again umass ranked first kentucky ranked second kentucky with a team that i believe had ten, ten, ten pros guys. ten pros ten pros i mean guys go to the nba and umass had marcus camby and so on some many levels it was this this huge mismatch but uh umass you know fell way behind they had you know they've been going with two guards basically the whole season one of them was in big foul trouble that game they storm back get within three they lose um the next night or two nights later when kentucky beats syracuse to win the national title and uh, UMass was long gone by this point. I stuck around at the Meadowlands to see this. And in the aftermath, I mean, Patino's great triumph, and he's there before the media, lots and lots of questions, and people are then writing their stories. And towards the very end, a reporter, not myself, it was Craig Handel from then, the, called the Springfield Union News, I think it was called, uh, he said something to the effect of, you know, Coach Patino, one of the people who was most proud of your accomplishment here winning this, this national championship uh, was Rick Patino. Uh, excuse me, was was Jack Lehman. Uh, can you talk about his his influence? Uh, and Patino, who is, you know, such a hard-edged, ambitious, difficult guy in a lot of ways, had what to me was his greatest moment where he just got really sort of soft and said that the thing about Jack Lehman is he taught me how to be a man. Um, he said it, you know, quite, quite eloquently. The, this, there was about a you know, paragraph worth of a quote, but it was just, you know, an incredible tribute to what that had meant, how uh, Jack Lehman had really helped him to grow up way back when. So that to me, I knew right away that that was gonna be like the, the end scene in the book. Uh, so yeah, Patino, fascinating guy, and he is coming back and coaching college basketball again at Iona. How about that? You know, it's 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 a redeeming anecdote because, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because my lasting memory of Patino, and I guess I just didn't remember that from the book because it's been a long time since I read it, but. My lasting memory of him was and I and I worked with Jack as a high school intern at WHMP, uh, sometimes as a fill in co-host when I was like 15, 16 of the uh, Saturday morning sports magazine in uh, with Ted Baker or sometimes later Bob Beeler. Um, I think I just Vandermeer had checked out by that point. He had, he'd moved on to, uh, I think, probably Miami by that point. And now he's with the Houston Texans. This was for for newer listeners. He's. Uh, Mark was the play-by-play announcer for the final four years. And um, 
my lasting memory was when when they did the court dedication for Jack about a year after his death, it was like a snowy night in 2006, I want to say, because he died in March of 2005. And John Calipari, who had a game that night in Memphis, yep. flew up privately, I think basically unannounced, hustled from, you know, Barnes Airport where you drive fly a private plane into in Westfield I guess they have a runway for that and got there for the the tribute on a snowy night and then hustled back to his game I think in Memphis or wherever it was for an eight or eight or nine o'clock tip and conspicuously absent was Rick Pitino who did not who I think and I you know have to go back to the the archives but I don't believe he had a game that night and so for me, like that was always my and then my other Rick Pitino thing was Rick Pitino was said to be instrumental in bringing Travis Ford to UMass. Um, and then it was sort of Cal Perry helped get Kellogg there. Those were the two who were looked there. But I'm glad there's that because my narrative as a as a fan uh, who, you know, aspires to help set some of these narratives today and, and do a little bit of revisionist history where possible is a little bit more sinister about uh, about Patino and that that complicates it in probably a healthy way. So uh, that, that's that's a great way of putting it, Sage. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, my sense of Patino is covered by many of the things. I also vividly remember that night of the dedication and Calipari's, you know, just heroic and unselfish effort to be there. And that is was not, you know, for all of the many critics that Calipari has. There are so many stories like the one that you tell about Calipari. I've seen that on a number of occasions. He did my show. I mean, you know what I mean? Like when it when it was like it had 20 episodes, you know, it was not even established what it is now. He, he was like, absolutely. You know, just, you know, that's who he is. It is who he is. And he just he came back like for Milt Cole's funeral on a game night. I mean, Milt Cole, who was, the, you know, the first guy who was covering him at the Gazette. And he's, you know, he shows up at a temple in Longmeadow for this. I mean, just at a game night when he was in the NBA, you know, exactly right. And so, and Patino, I mean, I just don't see that from him. I have seen a lot of things that I would judge pretty harshly, but you're right that it does, you know, it does complicate things because this, the story that the Patino anecdote in that moment, and granted, this is a winning moment, you know, you've just won the national championship and it's maybe it's a little easier to be gracious. If ever there were a time to be expansive, that would be it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did find it. Here's here's the exact quote of what he said that night, that night uh, from the book. He said about Lehman, he said, what he did for me was he taught me how to be a man. And that's the most important thing to me. He made it very tough. Back then, discipline was extremely stringent. Without Jack Lehman, I don't think I would have ever grown up. He taught me the fundamentals, taught me about defensive discipline, but he taught me how to be a man and care about the team before anything else. It was, in my mind, that was Patino's greatest moment. And he did not, you know, a lot of times I've seen him not rise to that, but uh, that was that was something. So all of this, you know, just went into the soup of what I felt were just so many good and interesting stories and that it was just gonna make make for a, a fascinating read. And I, I hope that that's what, what comes together. What was interesting in terms of the publishing, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I was not on a real time frame. I was doing this historically. I was doing it around the edges of a pretty 
demanding full-time job. But it was really because of the team's success in 95-96 that I had to hurry to get this thing done. And in in some part because John Calabari decided to do his own book during that year. That's right. Refused to lose, right? Refused to lose. And at first I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. You know, you know, I, I couldn't obviously I had, you know, no leg to stand on. He can do whatever he wants there. I was but I was upset about it. But then honestly, when I saw and realized, all right. There are a lot of things that this, you know, Calipari, this is going to be one source. Anything that's going to be remotely controversial, you're not going to see. Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't exactly a tell-all, you know. <laughs> not exactly a tell-all. So, it, yeah, I don't think it, uh, you know, it, it, it was something that got in my way at all. So did they, did the publisher say, like, okay, they just made the Final Four, they had this 35-2 and two season, there's this massive fan base. Now, I think also... For newer friends, you know, fans of the program, it's hard to, and I, I do it a lot on the show, but it's hard to overstate how popular UMass basketball was. And I say that just in terms of your book, like there's a real market for this at the time. I mean, there's a there's an economic demand for the kind of product that you had because so many people were so deeply passionate and engaged with with this team, and yet. A year later, the slide, you know, had kind of, we didn't really know it at the time, but had begun. So, you know, there was a kind of a short window economically to make this a viable book. And I'm wondering, were they like, okay, they made the Final Four. Calipari leaves two months later to go to the NBA. Was it like, hurry up and get this out? And when did it actually go to the printer? Yeah, I mean, it was was done quickly. I, I like to believe that it was not... You know, they didn't suffer too much for that speed because so much of it was the the buildup of previous years and the rise of Calipari and a lot of it, you know, so there were a number of things that were written well before this. But there is, you know, I think if some of it, if I could have back, I think there's maybe a little too much play-by-play of 95, 96 there because they did want to get it out quickly. They did want to sort of not be beaten to the bookstore by this other you know, the Calipari book, even though that one did wind up actually coming out first. Uh, you know, it was, but it was not, you know, it did not have perhaps the national reach that I had hoped that it would um, because, I mean, the UMass story in a certain sense, uh, you know, as you say, it. I mean, the slide began pretty quickly after that and it's, you know, the, the interest um, faded, and as you know, we've not seen anything remotely like it since. And as you mentioned, I mean, we're we're approaching the 25th anniversary, uh, and fans who are not around at that time, you're absolutely right, cannot even begin to imagine what this was like. It was unlike. I mean, the only thing that maybe within, you know, the modern era that caught the attention regionally, I would say maybe Red Sox 2004, some of the Patriots teams, perhaps. But this was a Western Mass thing. This was this area. This was the UMass community. And because the professional sports teams in Boston during this time were mostly in downward trajectories, and because the UMass story was so fresh, it became, they really became kind of America's darlings for one year. You know, all of a sudden, Sports Illustrated was coming to games. 
York Times, Boston Globe, which often did not cover UMass at all in prior years, was sending, you know, not just a beat writer, but one or two columnists. You know, Bob Ryan would be there, Dan Shaughnessy would be there. Uh, Good Morning America came in one day, Newsweek. you know, every single game, you knew the attendance would always be 9,493, the capacity of the Moen Center. And we haven't seen that number in a long, long, long time. But that was the number every game back then. Yeah, I mean, 2014, I think there were five sellouts and there was an excitement because they were returning to the tournament. But this was like, I think it's just hard to overstate, like, this was far and away the most dominant team in America for basically large part, the entirety of one season in, in large parts of the season prior. I mean, in many ways, people think that season prior was actually the, the more talented team. You can make a case, I think, had Mike Williams not gotten kicked off the team, that team is probably a Final Four team. I mean, the, the T-shirts were just the presumptuousness of, of success. You know, the T-shirt that was popular in the area at the time was like uh, sleep sleepless till Seattle or whatever it is that that movie had come out and this final four that year was or battle in Seattle, you know, and, and they were printing T-shirts about the final four site like in November. You know, I mean, it was like <laughs> they beat Arkansas by 24, who was number one in the country to start the season. And it was like this team is unstoppable. So for, you know, I went to college in the Midwest and there is a kid, you know, friend. I remember early on, I was just talking about where I'm from. His immediately, and this is at that point, well, you know, a decade later, he's like, he could name the entire, just a random kid from like outside of Boston, no connection to UMass, could name the entire starting five from that team. And that's a kid from Boston, you know, and also college sports nationally at that time, college basketball was huge. It was much bigger than it is today. It was, you know, I think the internet has changed things for, in a lot of ways in terms of the focus of the sports world being on these things, but it was a shorter season. I mean, I was looking recently, the schedule, like their first game was like November 26th. It was like around Thanksgiving, you know? Um, And it was a shorter window of time. The Patriots weren't good, as you said. And it was just, once it got rolling and they opened the year like 10, 11 or no, it was, it's also that Calipari played. And the other thing people need to understand is like, with all due respect to this year's Dayton team, if any of our flyer faithful are, are listening, as they sometimes do, you know, you guys had some nice games against Kansas and you hung around with some teams. UMass was playing and dismantling absolutely everyone in the country. I mean, at Louisville in March, right? Like they're playing games yeah. at Louisville in front of 18,000 people as a non-conference game in March, like March second or whatever. I mean, that was your tune-up for the A-10 tournament. Like, just unfathomably difficult schedules. Going out to Hawaii, uh, you know, winning the Maui Classic with, with relative ease. So, the and the 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 intensity of that fandom, I mean, I've, I've talked about on the show, just when you would r- drive down Route 9, literally every single uh hotel or you know like the old howard johnson's there or whatever the equivalent of liquors 44 was at that time had signage you know welcome dickie v and whatever and it was updated weekly whatever the big game was like it was that uh, transformative in terms of the entire region like if you look and i've said on the show before if you look at 
school photos of any kid my age or within a two or three year age of me, their school picture day, if you go home and you visit friends, you know, I visit friends or whatever, invariably their fourth or fifth or third or sixth grade picture or whatever was they were wearing a UMass basketball jersey. I mean, it was like, it was that big a deal. It was huge. It was, I mean, it just captivated this region like nothing that I have seen before or since. Um, it was just a magical, incredibly compelling time. And it was just a, a combination of a lot of things. I think it was, you know, I mean, Calipari certainly was at the center of it. So they're the national coach of the year. They have the national player of the year in Marcus Candy, who was, you know, it was almost like time-lapse photography watching his developments. This guy who had been really under-recruited, late growth player, has, kind of has the guard skills. Calipari brings out the work ethic and he emerges as this majestic player the toughness the you know i mean the kind of refuse to lose toughness i mean it's it's sort of you know much mocked and it became you know when calipari trademarked the phrase and it turned a lot of people the wrong way but there was undeniably something about the way that this team played that was so tough. They almost always won the rebounding battles. It was they were so fierce on the offensive pass. They were always on the floor. These players. There was a, a kind of tangible, visceral desire about the way that this team played that was electric to watch. And as you say, they took on everyone. I think they had ten games against ranked teams, won them all during the course of the season. Uh, it just had this inexorable feeling to it that was just so compelling from from start to finish. Did you? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that there's really been nothing, nothing like Did it. Did you know? You know, I was too young to fully understand the magnitude of what was happening. I mean, it was it just co- happened to coincide with the years. And I think there's like a body of like, I don't know, sociological research on this, but there's actually like, you know, you, you, get, you get hooked on teams between eight and 10. And so eight was the first year I really remember I was eight and that was the look when they lost in Wichita as a two seed and yeah. uh, in the second round to Maryland, who was a kind of a, they had some fun like battles. Joe Smith just went off in that game. Yeah, Joe Smith was had an unbelievable, Hoopy was then a number one pick. I mean, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, X-Ray Hip, Keith Booth, uh, those, yeah. t- you know, Booth, who was Dante Bright's cousin. There's a lot of interesting storylines. And for me, I don't think I realized, like, what I was that – that there was anything historic about it so much as it's logical that I would fall in love with the team that's in my backyard and is number one in the country. Like, duh, you know? Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because UConn is – you, I always say this, UConn was 45 minutes away or an hour away. To this day, I've never in my life been to stores. I don't know anything about any of the inner workings of the program other than this feud between, you know, uh, Calhoun and, and Calipari. And I've created all sorts of mythologies about it. But they basically stayed great for, you know, another two decades. And... There were people in the area, you know, who were just kind of casual basketball fans who took to UConn, much as I, I malign anyone who would ever do that. But I guess my question is, like, was there uh, – were you aware covering it and were the other people who were kind of of age aware covering it 
that what they were witnessing would probably never come to pass again? Or was there this sense that, you know, after three, four or five years of this, because it built, right? I mean, it was a Sweet 16 and then it was, you know, and then it was a new arena and there were milestones along the way. Um, or was there a sense like, yeah, this UMass has gone big time and they will now remain among the, you know, powers of the of the land for a while. Like what, what was the, you know, at the time or, or was it even not, was it not even discussed? Well, I think that the, the, the important history here is that UConn, I mean, you look at historically, I mean, they're, what they achieved, what Calhoun achieved, the national championships, I mean, they've, they have done more in, you know, in NCAA basketball than UMass by a long shot, but they hadn't done it yet. UMass did it first. Yeah. UMass was the first team to number one. When, when UMass became number one for the first time, which was, as you say, the season before, which was one of great expectation in 94 95 that was the year where they were preseason number three where there was the famous boston globe story in the preseason about the team's grades i could you know which which tainted for a lot of people the umass achievement and angered calipari was just was out of his mind about that and uh they are opening up against arkansas the defending national champion basically has everybody back and as you say UMass just destroyed them out of the gates I think it was 104 80 I believe was the final score I remember the you know right from the opening tip uh, Lou Rowe goes in for this monster dunk and it just was this this dominant performance and, and Springfield Civic Center gets really loud by the way that the low ceilings in there I mean if you thought yeah. the Mullins got loud that place got really loud it was an amazing environment that night. I mean, that was just such an incredibly fun game to cover. And, uh, you know, in that moment, UMass became the number one team in the nation. And you just, you know, you look at how bad they had been recently. I mean, 11 straight losing seasons, 10 before Calipari came and then his, his season. At one point in that streak, they had lost 29 straight games. That is hard to do. 29 straight games. This was during the decade of the 1980s, which I make the case in this book that this was the the decade when college basketball really became a big national thing. I think that happened. There were a number of forces that conspired actually during Jack Lehman's last year, which was 78-79, that were the forces, the economic forces that led to college basketball really taking off as a product. For instance, 1979 was the year when ESPN was launched. 1979 was the first era, the first year of the Big East Conference, the kind of made-for-television basketball conference. 1979 was the year of the first sneaker contract. Magic and Larry. And of course, as you're, you're right on it, Sage, as I knew you would be, that 1979, of course, was, you know, perhaps the most famous college basketball game of them all, the biggest ratings, the Indiana State, Michigan State, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson game. All of those things, I think, conspired at the same time to really launch college basketball into what it became, the, you know, the big marketing of the NCAA tournament, the road to the Final Four, March Madness, one shining moment, all of these things. And the 1980s when, was when this exploded. And in the 1980s, UMass stunk. So to see UMass rise to become the number one team in the nation 
from that point was extraordinary. And also because, you know, as I mentioned, UConn had not made it to number one at that point. So it was it was a landmark moment. I think that was part of the electricity. But do you th- but going back to the question, do you think watching it, were you like, this is a historic aberration that will you get you get a sense that this was going to be a flash in the pan. Calipari would leave. I mean, how much of the of what ultimately transpired did you kind of foresee or or at least did others who are following it closely uh perhaps cynically foresee i mean like because for me i just i think i just assumed that's what college basketball was that like umass was a blue blood not a blue blood but an emerge i understood that we were an underdog story but it was like well now we've joined the blue bloods and that's just going to be my fan identity and four or five years later I, I remember you know going to a game i'm in ninth grade it's like 2100 people it's it's like monty max senior night we're actually he had just gotten arrested for the dvd theft at media play i'm a jerk 15 year old and we're like vaguely taunting him calling him mon dvd mac which which is, you know, wretched behavior that you expect from a 14 or 15 year old. But it's like the demise was, you know, now five years in my life. Like I, I that was yesterday. Like it, you know, at, and and to go that quickly where, you know, and so to the point where like my own fandom at that point was that of like a Jets fan or something, you know, like bags on your head kind of deal that you would even because you could still remember the glory. So I am guess I'm wondering, like, did you foresee all that or was or or you know, did you get a sense I, this was going to last? Yeah, I mean, I can't, it's, it's hard It's hard to remember. I mean, I know I think we were so caught up in the moment day to day and and so appreciating it. I think in part because we, we probably recognized that it was going to be very hard to sustain. I mean, you're coming out of the Atlantic 10. I don't think that teams become blue blood teams that like, you don't crack that elite. It's almost always the same group. Right, it's always the Kentuckys, it's always the Dukes. It's you know, it's those are the these are the teams. And how often does someone who wasn't you know part of that this inner core teams that have you know maybe you could make a case for like a Gonzaga? I was going to say Gonzaga is the only one to do it because Mark Fuse stayed for twenty years. It's if right. it's basically if Calipari stayed and had he stayed, I think UMass's conference situation undoubtedly would be very different right now in both football and basketball. I mean, there's no, I, I agree. because people don't realize like Virginia tech was in the Atlantic 10, right? you know, and, and they were really good that year that UMass was in the final four. That was one of the tough games. Right. At Ace Custis in Blacksburg. Like that was exactly. the game everybody thought would, and UMass went in, went down there and allowed, you know, whatever that place was called, the forget what it was called. What's the, yeah. yeah and, and just, crushed them it was like a saturday morning game i remember exactly where i was um but yeah so so you're saying but but going to that being caught up in it um and i don't mean to cut you off but i I guess this gets to the question I, i have written down here is um you're you're covering this as a reporter and yet you're young you're 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 a little bit green because you're fairly new to this and you're you're in a small town kind of a fishbowl the boston press is now you know sharks in the water looking for stories um and you can't help but find the story irresistible as you've said so i'm curious like 
access wise, you obviously had great access on the road, but um, was it hard to, you know, maintain a, a little bit of a critical distance and, and a journalistic objectivity in all this, given how enthused and passionate the entire readership was, basically? That's a tremendous question. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's it is it is hard to not get caught up in the excitement the energy of it uh and yet it's so important i think also to be able to be detached enough from it that and to recognize that your credibility as a journalist is based on you know you're being accurate and that sometimes that the stories that happen are are not good stories are not going to reflect well on the, the team and the players that you've come to know and I think it's 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 much harder as a small town journalist to do that than it is you know from a big city you look at like the UMass grade story for instance you know how did the globe handle that they just had Dan Golden from the news side just swoop in you know to come in and do that story and then swoop out and you know they have the you know the, the people who are covering the basketball team not even touch that sort of stuff you know if you're writing for a paper like the gazette you have to do all of that stuff and so it is it is extremely difficult i think to to walk that line but but very important to do so and also as you mentioned i mean i think that the this sort of preferential treatment that the larger media sometimes get uh that's one of the big fights also. And so, you know, while UMass was getting good, when I was in on this story and, you know, the Boston media was almost never there, access was not a problem. But, you know, we're getting now into the mid-90s and suddenly there are bigger fish to fry. The Gazette doesn't seem like it's that important to Calipari. And so I had definitely had to fight and claw. Um, and I'll give you what a story about this that I think illustrates this this very well, which was the story actually on the day that Calipari left to take the job with the Nets. It was a fascinating journalistic moment. So that day was to be a press conference at the Basketball Hall of Fame to announce the resumption of the UMass UConn series, which Jim Calhoun had canceled and there was all this fractiousness between them and, and a lot of pressure. And finally, they had brokered this this way to to resume the series. They didn't play at all, right? Before, like when Cal, from Calipari's time getting there, correct? Mm, I think they did in the early years. Like year one, year late. two. Certainly not in my maybe, yeah. Maybe as late as like year two or three, something like that. But at a certain point, Calhoun, you know, just despised Calipari. There's just, I mean, he just he hated the way Calipari sort of would talk about New England that he knew that you know Calipari was an outsider from Pittsburgh and he was talking about UMass as being New England's team and it, it just just fried <laughs> and he just didn't like the way Calipari conducted himself and uh, so he canceled the series and then but there was so much pressure and that year in the 95-96 year Ray Allen I mean UConn was very very good not as good as UMass and uh so the series was to be resumed, and this was, you know, uh, something like May of '96, something along those lines. Forget exactly the, the time frame, May or June. And uh, 
there was this press conference at the Basketball Hall of Fame, and I vividly remember going over there, and there were these, you know, the, the, the center of the press conference, and then there were two orange chairs on either side. On one side, there was Lou Perkins, the UConn AD, and sitting next to Jim Calhoun. And then on the other side, there was Bob Markham, the UMass AD, sitting next to an empty orange chair. And everybody's wondering, where's Calipari? Where's Calipari? This is pre-Twitter, pre-internet, you know, pre, I mean, there's internet, but it's not, you know, we're not, social media. Is very not, early internet. Like, I mean, very early very internet. Early, very early. And, uh, but there are all these rumors that are flying, like, oh my God, Calipari's leaving you. And I'm, I'm noticing at this press conference that there are a lot of reporters are not there. And I realized I just have to book it. I have to leave this thing and go up to UMass. And so I went flying up the highway at a speed that I would probably not share with my, my children and got to the Mullen Center where I saw this about something like 60 or 70 media, you know, satellite TV trucks from Boston, everybody waiting in this long line outside. And I just, I pull up, screech into a parking space, ask people, what's going on, what's going on? They said, well, Calipari is, you know, he said he's gonna come out here and make an announcement. There are so many of us to wait out here. So I'm waiting and I'm walking up and down this line. And I, I see at a certain point, conspicuously, there's no Joe Burris, who was then the, the beat writer for the Boston Globe, no Mark Murphy, who's the beat writer for the Boston Herald. And so I went around back, went into the Mullen Center, went into the elevator, pressed the button to go up to the third floor of the basketball offices. I'm met by this big, beefy security guard. He says, you can't go in there. And I said, you know, I'm a reporter with a local newspaper. I cover the team. He says, you can't go in there. And so I call over to Bonnie Otto, then Bonnie Martin, the basketball secretary. No, no, I'm assuming you didn't even have a cell phone at this point, right? Not even a cell phone, right? right. I think it was like, it might have been a pay phone. I'm guessing. I don't even remember. But I call in and I say, Bonnie, is just by any chance are, are Joe Burris and Mark Murphy there? She said, oh, yes, Marty, they're right here. They're waiting for John to come out of his office. I said, whoa, you know, I've been covering this team, you know, long before they were. Can I get in there? She said, I don't have that power. And so I got off the phone. I then called Bill Strickland, who was the SID for UMass, and I explained the situation. And Bill recognized my plight, and he made a call, and suddenly I'm let in, and I'm sitting next to the two Boston media guys. And then, you know, we wait. Calipari comes out. He's off the phone. It's true. He's going to the Nets. He talks to us for about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, and then he goes down in the elevator to the bottom of the Mullen Center, gets into his black sob, goes out around the back, waves to this crowd of 70 media, and drives away. <laughs> and so, you know, they're all pissed. To me, this was like, this is the kind of persistence that you need to show as a, as a journalist. You just have to not take no for an answer. And we were the only three people who got the story. So, but that it's also indicative of you know, how difficult it was to sort of compete with the Boston media. I became the Boston media in time. I mean, I would, would write for the Boston Globe and cover UMass, and then for UMass, uh, you know, ESPN Boston and cover UMass for a while afterwards. But at that time, you know, I was fighting a good fight as the small town journalist. Yeah, that's a great story. Hope you enjoyed the first part of the interview with Marty. 
you wouldn't have been able to enjoy it without the fine folks at Five College Movers. Stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. You know, I was talking to Pat, the owner at Five College, sometime back, and I forget exactly the line, but he said something like, if you don't have a tattered uh, copy of Going Big Time, are you, can you even really consider yourself a UMass basketball fan? I forget the exact line, but it was a good one. Real ones, no. Real ones help you move. Real ones help you move stress-free. The folks at Five College Movers are the realest. Supporting UMass basketball, UMass athletics, and this podcast, if you're going anywhere, go with Five College Movers. Back to the rest of the interview. In terms of covering the team when you did, see, now there's been, you know, just among the kind of UMass Twitterati, there's there's a reluctance, you know, now you can engage so much with players' parents and, you know, it's everything's out there. And so if you're tweeting a frustrating thing in, in real time about a player making a turnover or whatever, there's a real chance you're going to hear it and then from, from someone close to that person. And then there's kind of this ongoing discussion as to, uh, the role of like being when you're allowed to be critical of players and what what's you know and I'm curious at that time where to read you you would have had to pick up the newspaper for one so there's a little bit of a barrier barrier to entry um, in general was was there did Calipari or did his staff did his sports information director Strickland as you mentioned did anyone seek to kind of enforce uh, a set of you know, formal or unspoken edicts about what was, uh, you know, kind of the line that you could cross. Did Calipari, who is notoriously detail-oriented and on top of all these things, did he ever try to say, we know he said it was off limits with the grade stuff, and that was, you know, then he iced them out famously at the Selection Sunday party, wouldn't let them into his house. He could be vindictive, um, maybe justifiably, but at times, but I'm wondering, like, how did that play out with you and how did that evolve from, say, 92 to 96 when really the program went from being regionally compelling theater in a small gym on campus to a legitimate arena and, uh, like, national product? Yeah, another terrific question. And it's, it is interesting in thinking back about, you know, I mean, Calipari, it was, as you say, I mean, really on top of media, on top of the coverage, you know, really looking to maximize it as something that was positive for him. Uh, I think that, I mean, the things that come to mind for me are, are two stories. One was the story about the, the UMass grade story, which we referenced earlier. And so, and I, I had mentioned that the Globe had sent Dan Golden in and not Joe Burris to do that story. But Calipari was so outraged about the globe what he considered to be this hit job of a story and I, I think it was a very very flawed story in a lot of ways but uh, be that as it may he was just just felt that he had been so victimized by the Boston Globe that he began to refer to the Boston Globe with a, another 
adjective in the middle that begins with F and ends in ING between the Boston and the Globe. And what he would do to stick it to the Globe would be that during that year, he would call Tony Maserati, the beat writer then for the Boston Herald, into his office and feed him story ideas because he knew that the Globe and the Herald were arch competitors. And that, so that was one way in which he really manipulated media. The other story that comes to mind was the one you'd referenced Mike Williams earlier. And Mike Williams, one of the most fascinating college basketball players that I have ever seen. Such a fascinating, fascinating guy with this, this, this memorable UMass career filled with all of these last seconds Most clutch player I've ever seen in any, other than David Ortiz, the most clutch athlete I've ever watched. Yeah, Calipari said himself at the time that he had you know more game-winning shots than anyone in the history of college basketball. And I don't know if that. I'm sure that was a little bit hyperbolic, but (laughs) certainly felt like it. I I, I challenge anybody to to disprove it. Like in in today's in today's analytics-driven era, I'm sure you know there would be a a legion of people on my Twitter feed explaining why, in fact, he was the 92nd uh, and you know <laughs> that, that that may well be but but in, in Calipari's hyperbolic way I mean that's what he what the way that he referred to him but there was the you know the memorable time when you know Mike, Mike Williams was always uh, you know kind of stuck in Calipari's craw in a lot of ways and was he really with the plan and he'd be you know you'd see sometimes in practice like the whole team is stretching at the center circle and there's Mike is like three steps off. He's kind of half stretching, half bouncing a ball, that kind of thing. And it it just exploded at, at one point. There was a game that was down in Louisiana. I was covering it, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you could tell that Mike was really in the doghouse in a big way. And there was a period of time when it was unclear whether he was going to just be suspended for a period of time or if he was going to be, really be kicked off the team. And as you say, that team had realistic Final Four aspirations. They did come close. They made it to the Elite Eight. But the period of time when uh, uh, it was uncertain what Calipari was going to do with Mike Williams, I think I said in the book at the point that Calipari, usually as rash as Romeo, was suddenly as hesitant as Hamlet because he just was not deciding, not deciding, not deciding, which was so unlike Calipari. And then in his weekly radio show, George Miller was the host on WHMP, George really tried to get Calipari to answer what was happening, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And Calipari got very frustrated with him, very agitated, and said, let's go to a commercial. And then the next year, George was no longer the broadcaster for UMass Basketball. Was that a direct order from Calipari? Well, no one has ever been able to quite prove that, but uh, you got a sense that this was a feeling that Calipari had, that this was his show, that this was promotional in nature rather than journalistic, and uh, that George had really crossed the line. And George, it should be known, I, I think, and I don't know George other than from like some odd back and forth postings on the UMass Hoops board over the years who have deduced that it's him. He was really good. And I've celebrated Calipari a lot and I've made no, you know, but that story, the implication is pretty dark. And, you know, every person is nuanced and and checkered and flawed. And I, I, I over, I've 
made very clear that I, I'm a huge Calipari proponent, but that to me is the, the sort of more prominent black eye or, or at least, you know, um, you know, it's a boo-boo, if you will. I don't, I don't have the words, but yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. It's sort of the flip side of this, what we were saying about Patino before. That there's so many harsh things about Patino, and then I, you know, I cited the one quote after the national championship game that he had about Jack Lehman, where it sort of gave a little nuance to to sort of elevate him a little bit. With Calipari, my read on Calipari is very similar to yours. I, you know, I understand he has many, many, many critics, but I believe that in my, in my mind that the goods really out, outweigh the bads with, with Calipari, that he has, has done a tremendous amount of positive things, that he's a phenomenal coach. Uh, and I've seen even, you know, hard-bitten college athletes who he was ruthless to speak glowingly about the impact that he has had on their lives. And I've seen the kind of loyalty that he has to people and we've talked about some of those stories like the you know note co and the jack lehman stories that we mentioned earlier but you know in this instance you know i think we see a heart you know see him in a harsher light and this is you know these are human beings that we're talking about they're complex they're you know, not all good they're not all evil um you know they're a mix and it you know calipari said i think the very first line it was i knew it right from the beginning that the the uh the introductory line in the foreword of my book going big time is a quote from john calipari it said things are never quite as good as they seem john calipari often preached during his eight-year stint as basketball coach at the university of massachusetts quote things are never quite as bad as they seem in between false reality that's a calipari quote i think it is definitely true of all people it may be more true about him than anyone. I, I also think he was a young man. I mean, like, yeah. it's a different, it's his first job. There was an obsession with every facet of the program. I mean, from, and he talked about it when he came on the show, just, you know, the marketing, the, everything was, uh, and, and he exerted that force of personality and intensity over everything he did. that was even peripherally associated with the program but go back real quickly on the mike williams thing about uh, just was the point just that that was an instance of calipari's uh prickly side yeah i mean i think it was i mean it was to, to me that relationship between the two of them calipari and mike williams was so fascinating and it just mike was someone who didn't quite get with the plan with calipari as much i mean mostly people had to really bend to Calipari's will and he's very skilled at getting people to bend to his will and Mike was reluctant to do so there was an immaturity about him in some ways there was a rebelliousness and uh also like an enigmatic streak like just very much so. where people maybe interpreted it as more sinister and in fact it was just like a little bit uh just like less mischievous than more like kind of just kind of wizardly like what what's he up to like what's his story you know that's that's a great like a manny ramirez i think is actually a fair a fair analogy <laughs> that's terrific yeah that's a, that's, a, that's a great yeah i don't think that there was a dark side to mike williams i think he's basically really a good guy and enigmatic is a good way to put it i, I also remember you know, i mean mike williams who had you know became a dad very young and he had these two twin kids who were adorable i remember you know after many games you have you know one on one shoulder one on the other shoulder uh, you know, there were some really good qualities to him too, 
And uh, it was that year, the 94-95 year, as you said, many people thought that was going to be the year, the make or break year. You know, if UMass was ever going to make a run for a national championship, that was going to be the time. And so that made the decision about what to do with Mike Williams all the more fraught. Um, and, you know, they had played during the period of time when he was suspended, they had played some great games. They looked like they had, you know, seemed like the team was doing somewhat better. And maybe it made the decision ultimately to boot him a little bit easier. But when they went up against really good teams, in the you know in the postseason, not having this player who could really create his own shot and you know just had the wherewithal to just want the ball at the finish line, I, I mean, think it really really hurt them. They basically played that entire NCAA tournament with three guards: Derek Kellogg, you know, and the and Carmelo and and Edgar were, were the were the three, and and you could feel his absence. There's there's a Going back, it's it's a tangent I didn't know we'd go down, but if I may, with Williams, someone told me this past August, they said that the implication, because the mystery of his departure, it somewhat remains shrouded in mystery. I think you've chronicled it as basically Cal Perry just kind of got sick of him and said, I can't keep doing this. It was it was like the the camel that broke the you know the the straw that broke the camel's back when they were down in Louisiana, but someone else was conjecturing, I think because of Mike's interesting personality, that that the mythology around it at that time, or the rumor mill, was that, and this is again pre-internet, was that there was point shaving going on. And I, I've never heard that. I, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, like, you were around the program in terms of, like, your sources at the time. Did anybody indicate that that was the case? And and I, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on his legacy in any way. He might be my favorite player ever at UMass, so... I have no – and for someone who's point shaving, <laughs> he hit the most clutch shots of all time. So yeah. <laughs> that might feed into the, the, the conspiracy theories because it's like, oh, UMass is losing and and Mike Williams hit another, you know, 38-foot bank shot at the buzzer or whatever. <laughs> like maybe it's, – it's like, it, that's like the only explanation that like – could or could explain some of the on-court theatrics that Mike Williams did pull off. But – were there other stories around the program that you just couldn't print because you couldn't properly source them or you felt like that was a, a touch too far? Like you've never struck me, and I say this as a compliment, as as kind of a scoops guy. You're you're into yeah. deep character study and, and really going deep on in sort of empathetic but critical but like empathetic portraits of your subjects. You're not – a you know breaking uh umass schedules sienna i've got the scoop you know uh next november or whatever in aruba like that's not your lane <laughs> that's not your lane and we won't refer to the national reporters who have you know that's sort of their stock and trade but i'm curious like were there things even interesting character study stuff that your sources around the program were giving you and kind of that you that you ultimately didn't write, but that you thought, oh, there's you know that sounds seventy five percent not bullshit. Yeah, you know, and that's a, that's a good question. I think it's a good critique of of you know my journalism too. I, what what I have done well and what I've not done well. I think that you're you're absolutely well. Right. If you if you were good at scoops, I don't think I'd respect you or have you on. Like that's not what I'm into. So. Right. Right, and, but that, I mean, that is a good journalistic skill, and there are some people who do that far, far better than I ever did. And, uh, you know, it's, again, I'm also, 
you know, was doing this in a pre-Twitter era. And uh, so, and that sort of stuff has never been, like, to, to me, the writing about sports has always been a, a vehicle into larger stuff. Like, it's that I think that sports brings together groups of people who otherwise don't come together very often in, in society. I think it's, it's an entree into doing, you know, stories about race and class and social justice um, that you don't get in a lot of other realms. And that was always sort of the strong interest for me. I don't, you know, I think I was naive about a lot of things. You know, I know there was, you know, for instance, you, you, a lot of people were made much of, you know, Marcus Camby at the end and the gifts from agents and the, the necklace with the 21 and how did people, didn't we all see this necklace and think that this was, you know, must have been worth a lot of money and how could he afford that? I didn't think that way at all. I, I had, you know, it did not occur to me in the slightest. And maybe that's just a, you know, a, my own naivete. Um, but, I, you know, did I think that UMass was just, you know, running this, this, you know, by the book, very clean program that Calipari was a knight in shining armor? No, I mean, you, you knew that, that the recruiting end of college basketball was, was, was rough, was tough, that you had to, uh, you know, go right to the line on a lot of things that maybe, you know, maybe cross it in the dark of night in a few ways, um, that this was a, the, the nature of the game, because it's so competitive, is that one team's success demands other teams failure and that that it's it's not like a classroom where if everybody does really well everybody can get good grades uh this is a ruthless business and people who succeed at it often have a certain ruthlessness to them i don't know that i saw a lot that was you know like the you mentioned like this allegations possibly of point shaving with mike williams this is the very first i've ever heard that mentioned um that's not to say that it, that was not could not might not have been true. I mean, you, you look back at the college basketball scandals, and you know, it's at City College, and you know, a great book by Matthew Goodman, by the way, out just this year on that. Um, you know, that was all very shocking to people back then too. So. Well, and I and I I think like I want to be clear, like I, I don't think that's that was the case. I think in part what what the what the thing illustrates is that 25 years later. There was so much mythology and just intrigue and, you know, palace intrigue around the program that stories as far fetched as that would still persist. The one that I think is not as far fetched as, as you mentioned is in the recruiting domain. And of course, it it's not a secret. Marcus was taking, you know, some money. And I, I've, I've been very clear, like, I don't think that that diminishes that time. I think you can look anywhere in the country and like it or not, you know, the, as the HBO documentary that just came out last week demonstrates, that's, that is a part of doing business. It has been forever. And frankly, I mean, I'm of the belief that players actually should be allowed to take, and you know, and I would imagine at that time you're seeing these guys sell out the gym every night, you know, banquets with 1700 people and Senator Kennedy and, you know, and, and you must, there must be some cog- some sense of like, Sure. Who cares if a kid took even if even if it's true. But the the one thing 
that I would imagine must have come up all the time that people must have been trying to feed you, whether UMass fans or UMass haters, was all sorts of stuff about payments and illicit stuff around the program. And did you ever encounter that? Did you ever encounter people trying to, you know, uh, legitimately or otherwise drum make that a, a story with you? The thing that I think the place where that came up the most was with the grade story rather than really with the, the recruiting. Oh, interesting. The grade story is, I mean, to UMass detractors, the grade story was proof in their eyes that UMass was running this renegade program, that this was not, you know, this was not really college basketball. This was, this was, these were basketball players who were not, not students. And, uh, you know, it was the treatment that this team got in, you know, on the road and in the media. I mean, I remember Dante Bright, if somebody wrote a column in Worcester referring to him as Dante Not So Bright, when we went out to, to uh, St. Bonaventure as the team's going through layup lines, you know, the fans are chanting, hooked on phonics, that sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's mostly like, you know, juvenile stuff. But also hurtful stuff, I think, to some of these players. And I think that that was, um, in the eyes of many people, like that was the thing that they really seized on where they felt like this was their proof. And I put that in italics, their proof that UMass was cheating, that Cal Perry was not doing things the right way. Um, the recruiting thing, sometimes, you know, I mean, I think that there were some players like, you know, around Lou Rowe, um, how he winds up coming to UMass can be kind of less so. I mean, I think can be like most people just sort of drop the ball. He was a late growth player who missed a year of high school because he was ineligible. Um, and UMass got in early, you know, with Bill Baino going down and cultivating a relationship um, with Camby. I think that was also fueled a lot of the Calipari. Calhoun animus because obviously this is poached a player kid in his own backyard yeah exactly and so that that you know that you get your national player of the year in the state of Connecticut and that he goes to UMass that certainly didn't sit well um, but let's face it I mean UMass was not exactly uh, attracting a slew of McDonald's All-Americans to the team mostly what the charm of the UMass success in the Calipari era where people playing above their station, above their ability, above their position. I mean, you've got, you know, Will Herndon playing power forward at 6'3". You've got Harper Williams at like 6'6", playing center. Uh, you know, you have guys just performing beyond what you'd expect them to perform rather than we're getting, you know, school is getting a slew of five-star recruits because they, they really weren't getting many people like that Dante Bright I guess was in that category not many were that was it he was the he was the lone all-american I think to uh, McDonald's yeah. all-american to this day ever to play at UMass um, I mean but that said I, I think and the recruiting services and, and all that were very different at the time kids were much less scouted I guess than they are now uh, but they, it's not as if you know Dana Dingle and and Lou Rowe, I mean, these guys were, were no slouch, right? Like they, they were, I don't, yeah. I mean, he, and also Cal Perry did a, a, a really good, actually, I don't want to liken this team to the one for next year, which I haven't, which I'm extraordinarily excited about, but the composition of Trey Mitchell being kind of a clear cut 
star and then a lot of really good pieces around him is similar in many ways other than that that the but the that the excuse me Calipari's teams were actually less deep than than what we're seeing now but yeah. he he fit the pieces together kind of majestically like that was his genius is that he'd basically find the right eight guys and there was always a guy in the doghouse who was perhaps more touted than uh, he ended up playing, you know. I mean, you can think of several of those guys over the years. But his gift was, I think, in many ways getting um, kind of more more out of the pieces. The sum total was always better than the pieces. It was, and you're right. I think that was the magic. And it was even, I mean, you, you'd hear other coaches even saying that. I mean, even people who were bitter competitors, some of them. I mean, John Chaney, I remember him saying that during the final four year. Was just you know waxing rhapsodically about UMass and what a team they were. That team is a team, he said. And uh, you know we know obviously they had some those two had some harder history. So yeah, it's you know I mean you obviously have followed the you know UMass teams through thick and thin since and are on top of what they're looking like right now. I mean, I was certainly was watching from afar this past season. I agree that I think there's excitement ahead. And I'm, gosh, I just, you know, certainly hope that we, on a million reasons, I mean, it feels like this great luxury and, you know, frivolous perhaps. It's okay. Just say it. You want, we want a college basketball season. We want college basketball. We want it again. We want, you know, life back to you know some kind of normal and and that's that should be a part of it and you know uh certainly hope that that we we get there and if so i mean i think that umass fans have a lot to be excited about the team ended really well this season i think you know won like four out of the last six they had that last hard painful loss to roadie right before what would have been the a10 tournament was a you know tremendous comeback in that game and just fell short at the end but you're right. I mean, Trey Mitchell. I mean, seems to be a you know bona fide star here. Uh, you know, big body, agile, ferocious. He's player. a pro. I mean, he's a pro. Like he's a pro. That gift. That game against Rhode Island. I I will say, actually may have exceeded. It's very. It's very difficult to compare eras because for a variety of reasons. But that exceeded. He went for 34 points, six of eight from three, 12 rebounds, several assists. It was one of it was it was better than any individual performance I can basically ever recall. Other than Luan Pipkin scored 44 in a game a couple of years back, but he did it on 27 shots, and it was a it was yeah. a very different type of. I mean, these were he was playing against good senior big men and just unstoppable in a way that was like wow, you can build yeah. a program around that. But um. Real what do you quick, think of Ty- Tyrone's kid. Just out of curiosity. Oh, he is. Did you go to any games this year? I, I, I didn't go to games, but I did watch. So a- he only played ten games. Ten games, right? Um, okay. He was the leading scorer before he went down. He, yeah. he would have it's his. A different game than his dad. Co- the most. It's just the complete opposite. He is a yeah. lanky lights out three-point shooter. I mean, he shot, he would have been fourth in the country. I mean, that percentage would have been fourth in the country, far and away number one among freshmen um, of everyone in the country in terms of three-point percentage. Just a silky smooth three-point shot that is 
automatic. I mean, it was like there were moments this year where you're just like, this kid is automatic. Uh, and it's so funny because he could not be. I mean, <laughs> he's long and lean. He's like it is just the complete. And he he does have a little of that toughness. Like I was watching a game at Rutgers and I was sitting right behind the bench, and he, he the way he was getting bodied by some big dudes on a Big Ten program as a freshman and just taking the hits. You could tell, you know, he he played with his dad and he wasn't going to back down. But in terms of like Tyrone Weeks's game, could not be more opposite. I mean, he was as. Pulling his way to the basket, offensive rebounds. Yeah, but I, I got to say, it is it is really fun to see his son on the team. You know, I mean, there is yeah. this a visceral, like, it's cool, you know? I mean, it's, and he gets it. I think he, he just, he gets it, you know? I mean, and he'll, he'll get, he's getting that full year back. So he's going to, you know, chase, because he's sort of got a 150 point head start in a certain sense, you know, like he'll, he'll, He'll do some real damage here, and uh, it's it's fun to have a kid like that on the roster. But real quickly, I wanted to ask you uh, just fa- re- just simple, quick questions. In all those years, a favorite quote – not favorite quote as in this was a beautiful piece of rhetoric, but who gave the best quote among players? Or, you know, you can name a few. Yeah. Who gave a particularly memorable quote? And then maybe it's in the same vein. Maybe it's the same person. Maybe it's someone else. But – who did you particularly enjoy as a uh, covering as a just as a human being? I mean, you alluded to Weeks, you alluded to Edgar Padilla. Uh, feel free to mention others, but both great quote and person that you enjoyed covering. The quote that leaps to mind for me is a Harper Williams quote about Calipari, and it, he said this: "Hard ain't hard enough for him." <laughs> and I always loved that quote about Calipari: "Hard ain't hard enough for him." Um, but in general, was t- was Harper like a, a was he a quotable sort of most quotable player in that era? Or um, he was a good quote. That was just a great moment because I just it, it just seemed like Harper was. I mean, Calipari referred to him. I think it was the first time he referred to a player as a warrior, and Harper Williams was that. He was that you know that guy in the Calipari mold who just played out of his mind, who just you know. Every person who has ever played college sports believes in their hearts of hearts that they are giving their all, they're giving 100%, they're trying their hardest, however you want to say it. To me, and I've said this before, but to me, the great coaches are the ones who get players to give more than even they think they can. And that is, to me, the great gift of Calipari, and it was really encapsulated so well by that Harper Williams quote. So that would be the one that I would choose. You know, in terms of the, the players that I most like to cover, I mean, that just love that 95-96 team, some of the personalities on that team. Uh, for me, I think I would go back to the Padilla family. Uh, Edgar in particular was just such a sensitive soul, so fierce. And he was, I remember, uh, and I think I referenced earlier in this, this conversation, a time where, like, Calipari, how hard he could be on players. I remember one night at the Palestra, um, UMass playing, I believe it was against, maybe it was St. Joe's, I forget. But it was um, a game in which my media seat was right behind the UMass bench. There was a play right before halftime where Calipari had called timeout, set up some sort of play. 
the DS is, is setting up the play, but sees this different opening, kind of freelances, takes this three-point shot, misses it, and Calipari goes storming onto the court and is just completely in Padilla's face, just screaming at him. And there's Padilla on the bench, tears streaming down his face. This, you know, hardened inner city kid. There's Camby on the bench, leans one of those long condor-like arms around Padilla's back. So tender. And yet Padilla could also be so ferocious. It was, you know, such a tough player and I just loved the family story so much that that probably was my my you know my favorite one to cover also Carmelo Travieso is very good friend and roommate uh such a thoughtful guy as an artist um with real sensitivity to him liked him very much Ty Weeks as I mentioned I think it's just a great great story so uh it's hard to choose, but if I had to choose one, I think it would be. So, so segueing real quick, and I'll, you, you got to go whenever you got to go. I appreciate how much time you've given this. People sure will, so will really dig this. But um, the Goodell Padilla moment, excuse me, Marty, um, yeah. the, the Goodell Padilla moment um, when he went in in the final four. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you're young, you don't even – I don't even, I guess I was vaguely cognizant that he was on the roster, you know, I mean, <laughs> but he's so rare. I think he played like 29 minutes all year. And here we are in the final four and UMass falls down. I'm just setting the scene because there are a lot of people who are not alive who listen to the show then, but UMass falls behind in the first half by like 10, 11, 12, something like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't see, you know, in Kentucky was so athletic and explosive that it just felt like it could get out of hand really quickly. And they throw in Goodell Padilla at a couple moments, who was, I think a walk on, I'm not even sure he was a scholarship. Was a yeah. yeah. Who had, who I would later learn was like, had had, and maybe this isn't true again, mythology lingers that he had had a complicated relationship with Calipari, but there was a, there was a subset of guys at the local YMCA who were Puerto Rican guys. So they, it was a fairly close knit community in Springfield, Holyoke, Northampton area. And they always would say like, actually Goodell is better. Actually Goodell is better. And I didn't get it. I was too young to understand that there could even be, I mean, I don't think he was better, but I think that he could even be on the same plane as his brother, who was like the starting point guard. In the, and he went in and to this day, that might be my favorite moment in all of, like, sports fandom. He scored only seven points, but he had these, like, miraculous spin move runners that got the team basically single-handedly back in the game, certainly from an emotional vantage point, and just caused me to, like, see the world differently. Like, wait, what did Calipari? You know, like, as a young kid, you just, it's all mythology. There's no cynicism. And I'm like, wait, what were these old guys at the Y telling me? Maybe like Goodell Padilla was this hero. Like, what was your sense covering Goodell and his relationship to Edgar and Calipari was? And then just talk about that moment because for me that is one of the the more formative moments of my UMass fandom. It, it was a beautiful moment, and it was a you know within the context of the whole family, even a deeper story really because Goodell the older brother, and uh, you know you have to you know these are very competitive athletes and what a hard thing it is within a family 
when the younger brother sort of usurps that role, the younger brother is the one who gets the scholarship. He becomes the starter. He becomes the star. I mean, this is tough within a family. And Cadell was a guy with a lot of pride and in and out of Calipari's doghouse, played very little, as you said. And UMass had this really interesting situation that final four year. One thing that was just so bizarre about them is that this was a team that was so thin especially at the guard position. They really had three scholarship guards. So it was, it was Edgar Padilla, and it was Carmelo Travieso and Charlton Clark, and Clark broke his leg in the first game, came back a little bit, I guess, later, but he was really not someone who could be a factor here. And pretty much night in and night out, Padilla and Travieso were logging huge minutes. 38 minutes, you know, and then like Ross Burns would go in and play two or whatever. Exactly. You get, you know, you know, walk on time for, for Ross Burns or maybe Goodell would play a little bit, but mostly these guys were playing. You're right, like 38 minutes, you know, if the games were close, and so many of them were. UMass, despite being the number one team in the nation, despite winning 35 games, there were not a lot of routes. They were a lot of games. There were 10 games, I believe, that year that they were behind at halftime. There were four overtime games. They just, they had to fight and claw to win every game. And so these guards were logging massive minutes. They never got in foul trouble until the Kentucky game in the national semifinals. And this was part of, I think, Tino's plan was just to, to really try to get one of the UMass guards in foul trouble. And Travieso was in foul trouble early. And so, as you mentioned, UMass was in danger of really getting blown out, and Calipari was kind of desperate, and he looked at the bench and kind of looked into Goodell's eyes and, you know, kind of, can I trust you moment, and Goodell was just sort of pleading to him, and Calipari makes this audacious move in a game of, you know, that was, for all intents and purposes, the national championship game, as these were the two best teams in the nation, Uh, you know, going to this walk-on who had hardly played, and as you mentioned, Goodell just rises to the occasion. It's making all these tough, competitive, winning plays against this team that has 10 guys who are going to the NBA. And UMass starts clawing back. What was so great about this story, in my mind, is that the Padilla's mom, who was always very nervous, when the games were tight, she would leave her seat and she would walk around. This, this was too much for her to, to see when... UMass was not doing well, and she went up at the at the Meadowlands, and she's walking around not seeing the game, and Millie, the older daughter, is looking around when, as Goodell goes in the game, saying, oh my God, oh my God. She has to find her mom, and she's racing around at this arena to try and find her mom, who can't hear. <laughs> so she's trying to find her mom to tell her this incredible story that both of her boys are in the game, and that they're playing great together. What a great story. So I, I absolutely agree that, that that moment was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, you know, such a great part of the story of that season. Was he uh, was Goodell even on the team the year before? Like I don't I don't know if he was. I, I think, think the been at one point earlier <laughs> Maybe two years. Right. Like, I think he might have been there for a year before Edgar got there. We'll have to have a longtime listener of the, you know, like there are people who will know this, but it it felt like he emerged almost the way I'm thinking of it. It must have been. It was almost like Edgar has proven enough. 
He's now a junior. If the brother is going to be the walk-on, fine. Like, if that's what's going to keep the fan – you know what I mean? Like, it almost felt like a package deal sort of thing. And, yeah. But, but you just never – and he really was amazing in that game. But, like, he didn't play the rest of the year. Was there – was it, did it even cross your mind covering the team throughout the season that this was a kid who was really good and Calipari had issues with, that he was in his doghouse? Or was it just Calipari liked to play his guards 35 minutes and that is who he was? Good question. I don't even remember thinking that much about it. I mean, I know that he was an important player in practice because they needed, you know, to be pushed in practice. I also know that it was, and I don't even know exactly what the issues were, but that he and Calipari did not see eye to eye. He thought he should be playing a lot more than he was. I think it was, he was both very proud of Edgar, but also very jealous. And I think that probably Calipari felt to some degree that he had to keep Goodell around. I'm just speculating here, just keep Edgar happy, keep the family happy. And so it was this very uneasy relationship. It was kind of like Mike Williams-esque without the Mike Williams results. But unlike Mike, Goodell struck me as like passionate and like like Mike Williams had a kind of a, uh, like an insouciance, you know, like a casual detachment in a, in a kind of like he was sort of just like an observer of his own drama. And he was kind of like, yeah, like I'm doing my thing and I'm going to get you the biggest shot of, of the season at the moment. You don't think it's happening. Whereas Goodell, like it felt like the way he played in that game, the fierceness with which he drove the lane, like there was something about it where he was like exercising years of demons and saying like I it was like a box it was like a prize fighter you know like Walker anticipating the pass down inside look at this spin move Padilla for the year and coming off the bench like he belongs out here. Terrific pass. He is the one who introduced basketball to his kid brother. Edgar was a baseball player. He said, I want you to try this. And they are really something special, these two. The parents here, the parents are deaf. There's Mr. Padilla right there. said when they came to this country they spoke two languages Spanish and sign language and uh, of course now doing so well finally getting his chance to pummel someone you know like it almost felt like in retrospect he was like getting vindication there was vindication. yeah it was it was so that's see, that's why you are the sage because that's exactly that 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 take is exactly right and uh, you know I think it defines I mean really what Goodell was was about and uh, I have to believe that this, uh, the fact of that game and the fact of that performance has been something really important to him in his life. It's been really important in my life. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just, I don't, I, I can, like, even that game, it's, it's all I can really remember is, like, those that spin move where he kind of went at a 45-degree angle and hit this weird runner um, over, like, 
I don't even know Walt, like Walter McCarty or Antoine. I mean, it was just like ridiculous. And you're, you're like, who is this kid? And I just remember like, yeah, like a weight from my shoulders being like, all these guys were maybe they were right. Like maybe he really yeah. was. Um, but any other, I guess. Well, first of all, I want to give you a chance to promote anything you're up to. You are the iconic, much beloved uh, professor of sports journalism at Springfield College. And uh, so many people sing your praises in, in that orbit and have you've done so much for a lot of kids there. And so I want you to be able to tout anything you're working on. But before that, are there any other kind of lasting memories, lessons, takeaways that you uh, you want to share that maybe you haven't, you know, in a while or that just come to mind as we've gone down a lot of memory lanes here? Well, I mean, I have to say what's been interesting is, I mean, this has been a, you know, lengthy conversation, but it hasn't felt lengthy to me. And it's what's, what has struck me is how powerful all this stuff sits with me after all this time. I mean, this is 24 years out from that season. And it's not something that I talk about a lot. It's something I wrote about a lot at the time. It mattered deeply to me. It, it helped make me a much better journalist and writer. Um, I think a deeper person in a lot of ways. So I'm very grateful for having had the experience. It's fascinating to me to recognize how largely it still sits in my soul what a big place it has and you know your questions have been so good and your knowledge about UMass basketball your your you know unparalleled passion for it has activated something in me that's really fun so I think that's my biggest takeaway has has been that it's just been a great conversation and a great opportunity to revisit something that just really mattered deeply to me at the time and and does still and I want to thank you because one of the and I really appreciate you saying that, Marty, because I've always been a huge fan of your writing. And I think anyone who does, who's just learning about the program needs to go back and read the book. It's essential, as are so many of the articles you've done in the years since. But when I was eight, uh, I don't even know how I knew you or something, but I, you got me into the locker room after a game, which I don't even think I realized until years later. Um, and it was Marcus Camby's freshman year. It was. Uh, Craig Berry's senior night. He was the lone senior against Duquesne. And he I was behind the basket because that's how you would get a ticket at that time. If you weren't a season ticket holder, you would you could you get like an excess student ticket probably on spring break or whatever at that time. And Craig Berry, again, you didn't know he was on the roster at eight kid from Cambridge just came out of nowhere with like seconds to go and just emphatically dunked the ball. The other memory from that night was Derek Kellogg hitting a three, and I had seen him at a UMass women's game at the cage the day before. He promised me he'd hit a three. Of course, I'm sure he, you know, I mean, he hit like four or five probably. But uh, the elation I felt, and then my dad said, we're going, we're going over here. And I just went into the locker room. To this day, probably the only time I've been in the locker room, <laughs> Marcus Camby draped in a towel about... 190 pounds soaking wet, literally, literally at that moment. And I just went up to him with a, a media a scorecard or whatever. And I said, you're my mom's favorite player. Could you sign this? And <laughs> that was my response. And he did. And that was the only time. That's all I remember from that night like this. Because he, he did look like a dinosaur. Like it was like, 
the arms of a you know raptor or something and uh you you know it was i didn't you you didn't make a big deal of it or anything and so that those moments all formed and for better or worse have uh left me at you know 11 p.m with two small children in new york talk (laughs) talking about it um you know it's funny because people say the highest compliment people have given me is oh your show's pretty good you should do a bigger show on sports or you know like whatever and it's like I don't think you get it. Like there, there's something that transcends, like it's it transcends uh, interest in sports. It's like a it's a primal like formative thing that just stuck and stuck and stuck, and then it it evolved into whatever it is now. But it's it's uh you know in no small part uh, thanks to to your uh, entree, I guess that night as a as a formative. Uh, you know, uh, experience in my life. So thank you for whatever role you've played in this strange, uh, journey of mine. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and it's just great to see it, you know, both of these journeys sort of co- coalesce all these years later and, uh, you know, just to be able to kick this around for, for quite a, a bit of time has, has just been a joy. I mean, really a lot of fun and it, it just makes me excited. I think about, uh, you know, the prospect of what next year can be and that, you know, that it will also be this big 25th year anniversary. Do you so think, think it, yeah, go it ahead. Be really exciting. Are you, are you interested in doing anything about the 25th year? Have you pondered that or, or you know, I, ha- I have pondered it. And, uh, because I think that it's, I think it's a good story. I think I have good, you know, connections with the, with the players. I think they would respond to me. And uh, I think it could be a really interesting thing to revisit because, you know, 25 is a good round number, but it's also, you know, as, you know, that is more of a period of time than they were alive at the time, which is incredible to think about. Yeah. Well, they seemed like as a kid, I mean, even now, the fact that I was, that I am 12 and 15 years older than those kids my dad sometimes jokes like he still thinks he's 70. He still thinks the players, you know, at UMass are older than him. Like <laughs> the the way we elevate kids at, at, you know, and the pedestal or the, and the microscope that those kids were under at that time. I don't think people now can fully appreciate like, and I think sometimes I'm not as empathetic when a kid gets frustrated about whatever limited fan frustration there is now, because I'm like, do you know what those kids were going through at that time? Like every step they took was was scrutinized by every person in Western Massachusetts. You know, it's true. They were, they were really looked at under a you know, very very high powered microscope at every every step. So, Marty, what are you up to now? What are you? Any projects you want to promote? Uh, tell people about any causes, whatever you want, whatever you want to. You know, the the floor is yours. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, mostly it's just been been great to talk about uh, UMass Hoops. But, uh, you know, my life these days, as you mentioned, I teach at Springfield College. I have been there for quite a length of time now in my 21st year. I hardly believe it. It's a program called Communication Sports Journalism. It's really a kind of a straight journalism major informed by a strong sports interest. It's a little speck of the planet, but it's sort of been my speck for these 21 years I came in in the very first as the program started its first day was my first day in the fall of 1999 and uh it's it's really been a great ride i have uh, 
I think very good connections with with my students. Uh, this year, launched with one of those students, uh, young man by the name of Chris Rim. Uh, we did a they've done a podcast that's now uh, being interrupted by our pandemic, like so many other things. But uh, it's a podcast on the intersection of basketball and social justice. That's called Liberty Justice and Ball. So that's been uh, that's been a really fun project. That's kind of taken me back into the basketball world a little bit more. Uh, I have do not do nearly as much article journalism. You know, uh, back in the day, I obviously wrote a lot for newspapers, and magazines, internet, pub, you know, short form article length pieces. I do much less of that now. Um, more, you know, occasional stuff. Uh, been much more involved with sort of you know social justice and, and civil rights proper than necessarily connected with the sports world and have an ongoing book project that is uh, you know still probably a few years from the finish line but it's uh, kind of a local civil rights book that has been the biggest project of my life and uh, you know we'll certainly love to come on and talk about that when it's it's you know we hit the finish line but i think we're still a couple years away from that if you can find even the most peripheral connection to umass basketball we'll have you for as long as you'd like <laughs> right i'm sure we can find a path to it so but yeah that's that's been great and i sage i really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on it's been a been a really fun conversation and uh hope people enjoy it all right marty thank you We're going to do a quick mailbag. I don't really know why. It's a reckless and irresponsible thing for me to do because it's 1.28 in the morning. And uh, I'm going to have a miserable day tomorrow because uh, I'm answering these. But I'm going to do it real quickly. So I'm going to try to do an all-time record pace here. Sorry about the mailbag I didn't post on the Sloven Jay Burnham episode. I still have a bunch of those, but I'll probably have to post them some other time or never. Mike LaCapo, whose question I ignore every single episode, I'm in a good mood tonight because of the Dobrow thing. He says, are we too good for the Mac? And the answer is yes. Eric Friedlander, he asks the same question every single week, just so you guys know. Eric Friedlander, efried97, if you're doing a mailbag post episode, then mailbag is, oh, no, that was something else. Sorry. He said, also, do you think a 11 to 13 man rotation is truly realistic? McCall always seemed better with the shorter rotation, but obviously that's not best for the press. Uh, I think it is if they play as hard as Bergeron says. My only concern with it is, like, I don't really know if it... Sometimes it's, like, if you do that, you're basically limiting everyone's minutes to sub-30. And it's, like, I kind of just want to see Trey Mitchell and Javon Garcia cook. You know, it's, like, just let them rock. Like, I, you know, there's a... And TJ just banging threes, like... I kind of just debaji on the break. Like, there's just shit I want to see of those dudes. Just when they're having those nights, just let them work. And I think there'll be nights where you'll have that. Like, three, two, three, four guys will get 30 plus for a night. And then a bunch of dudes will play 16, 14, 12, 9. You know, I think it's, you can't look at it as a, you know, average thing, right? There's only 200 minutes to go around. But that being said, that's 10 dudes who can get 20 minutes, right? And, I, and so I think I think there's, you know, this year we were playing guys like 
Carl Pierce playing 37 minutes. It's like he's going to play 25 and get more points, you know. So um, I think it can work. It's just it's more about managing the egos off the court. And I think that this is a close team that knows each other from high school. So they, they, they get that. Um, Gabe basically asked the same question. Can Gabe Rosenberg, Gaber 205, can we go, go with 12 guys getting 12 to 14 minutes per game with Trey getting 25 to 30? Also, if we play this, people want to. Can Trey play 25 or 30, or will, or will that hurt him? I think he can, yeah, because he's going to be probably on the, other, on the back of the press, which is, so he'll exert a little bit less. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he can. We'll see. Riff Raff Street Pat, PVL7, all these best of March lists got me thinking. Does UMass have a signature March moment? Obviously, the 96 run, Goodell Padilla's assist to Camby versus UK gets me. But nothing sticks out as something that gets played in all-time montages. The sneaky answer, Barbie over Sienna. He's referring to Tony Barbie's shot over Sienna in the NIT, like first or sec- like second round, third round to get to Madison Square Garden, uh, where he hit like a half court. No, not how far was it out? I forget. Well, no, I, I think the obvious answer here is the um, the Harper Williams shot against um, Syracuse in Worcester. That was awesome. That was the shot. I think it was against, yeah, against Syracuse to go to the Sweet 16 in like 92? 92, I believe. Yeah. That was definitely the shot. Um, but the Goodell Padilla stuff was obviously epic. But that wouldn't make a one shining moment video, if you will. I'd love to see the uh, the 92 one shining moment video and see if the, that shot made it, by the way. The um, Harper Williams lefty three as the shot clock expired. Um. Gabe asks, what's the floor and ceiling for this team? I've kind of said it for a while. I think the ce- the floor is like 17, 18 wins, and the ceiling is 24, 25 wins. People will say that's really high, but there's a lot of things that can go well with this group. And uh, I, I think you can get like 11 and 2 in the non-conference, 10 and 3, and like 12 and 6, 11 and 7 in the conference, and then another, and then a win in Brooklyn. So... However you slice it, there's like 22, 23, 24 wins that are like very gettable. But, you know, you never know. You could also get 17 and lose like a bunch of games by 2 and 4 and 6 and whatever. Gabe also asks, aside from Trey, what returning player surprises us with a jump forward in terms of improvement? What newcomer surprises us with how good he is, how ready he is for the A-10? I don't know if Garcia counts as a surprise to your second question. Because I'm expecting a lot from him, which may not be fair, but I am. So a surprise, I think, probably would be... I think not enough people are talking about Cairo McCrory. He's a friggin' athlete. Kid's got a 44-inch vertical. He's a good defender. He'll be very useful in the press. He'll, you know, in, in similar ways, I think, that Preston was this year, where he just had some really impressive nights. I think Cairo could do that, and we're just not talking about him enough. I don't know if people are talking enough about DeAndre Dominguez, who legitimately might start from day one. And I think the same is true of of uh, Ronnie DeGray. So Ronnie DeGray, Kyron McCrory, and um, who's the one I missed? Ronnie DeGray and DeAndre Dominguez are all going to compete for a ton of minutes right away. I think people like kind of already you know know Noah Fernandez from when we recruited him out of high school. And, you know, he's from Massachusetts and is, is, is very, very well regarded in Massachusetts basketball circles. And I think people already know 
a lot about uh, Javon Garcia just because the hype train's been there since day one from this and other programs devoted to covering the team. Um, but the other three, so maybe it's a cop-out to say the other three. I, I guess I'll say DeGray because he signed today, and I just don't think people are, he says, on their radar. But fuck, man, Gasparini's legit too. Damn, this seems fucking loaded. Wow, I am excited. Um, Sloven asks how many times I'm going to make it to Amherst next year. That's a great question. You know, I think those conversations will go on with my wife uh, at some length over the offseason. I think if the team is having a truly special year, she'll cave more. She gets it. She's a sports fan. Uh, she also, you know, I didn't go to a single game in Amherst this past year. I went to four on the road, probably my least ever. Still made it four games on the road, but, you know, I couldn't get up there with a two-month-old, three-month-old. So I think next year, if quarantine's over, I think we'll owe my parents a bunch of trips. I'll, I'll probably use, you know, use that a bit to say, you know, they're getting older and, you know, um, after the pandemic, I just think it's important that we make regular visits there. Of course, those regular visits will all coincide with uh, critical weekend Atlantic 10 basketball games, uh, as well as the Rutgers game right after Thanksgiving. That's virtually definite because I go up for Thanksgiving anyway. Um, so I, I'm hoping, I mean, five would be ridiculous with, with two little kids. I, I would hope to get to five there, um, but it may be more like three. I think the last, I think last year when they sucked the 11 and 21 year, I think I only got to two or three the year before when they were like decent. I probably got to four or five. Uh, I'll still keep my season tickets. Sloven also asks, uh, hypothetical, what's the ceiling in 2023 if everyone from last year's class stays all four years and we add classes like this year every year along the way? So I'm of the belief here, maybe a bit, uh, this is a bit of a contrarian take, but I don't think you can build for 2023. Like, that can't be what you're all about with anymore in college basketball because of the transfer rules and the nature of how that all plays out. Um, and because of the fact that I really do think Trey Mitchell's an NBA-type talent and could be gone before his senior year. And I do not expect if Trey's... I think Trey will, will do three here. I don't think he'll do four. Uh, based on a lot of sources I've spoken with and based on the fact that I think he could be an NBA player after as early as after two, I think more likely after three when he'll be like a first-round pick type. And if he wants to come back to college for a fourth year, there's something to be said for graduating and going and playing at Kentucky and just straight up doing like a minor... like and. It's literally like at that point it's Kentucky, Kansas. Duke doesn't really. I know Duke takes transfers now. He took the kid from Columbia. Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, maybe North Carolina. Like if they're back where they often are. Like that's about it. Um, I guess Nova maybe, but you know I, I think if you're Trey Mitchell, like, and you're trying to just because I think at that point you're just playing for. You know, draft stock, and you plan to go from the 18th pick to the seventh pick, or whatever, and just prove that you can play ACC competition night in, night out, and dominate them. Which we know he can. 
But if he feels like he needs that opportunity in one year to go from making, and I, I, I don't follow the NBA like I once did or, you know, salary cap stuff, whatever. But I'm making this up to go from, you know, $3.4 million in his first year to, you know, or to go from $1.9 million to $3.4 million, like, and you can do it by transferring, like, God bless the kid, you know. So I, I don't think you can, and I'd love it if you stayed four years, but I just don't, I don't think you can think like that. There's so many moving pieces and variables. And I think this team can win now. A lot of these kids are post-grads, so they're basically sophomores. You know, the rigors of prep life are such that you, you kind of have experience already. Like, you saw that with TJ Weeks. You saw that with Preston Santos as the year evolved. Oh, speaking of Gabe's question, who's going to surprise us in the return? I don't know if Preston Santos counts, but I, I think Tabaji Walker, actually. So, because that's my guy. Uh, so, but... But going back to uh, yeah, slow thing with 2023, I just think look like you don't know what ha- is going to happen between now and then. These guys are experienced; they might transfer. Yes, like if you have TJ Weeks and and Javon Garcia, and I mean you'd be fucking awesome. Like you you you're setting yourselves up for three years, maybe four years of like legitimate A-10 tourney runs, like maybe title runs. And there's a case to be made that Trey's junior year, I mean, yeah, dude, you're right. Trey's senior year, if he was still here, even if he's not here, they could be fucking nasty. Because Tony will find some other big, you know? I mean, he'll find some whatever. I don't know, Slow, but I, I, think, I think the thing is this. The ceiling is honestly a, a tough question because when you say it, it sounds stupid. But the reality is the NCAA tournament is a funny event. And that's what makes it the most beautiful sporting event the world has ever known. Because once you get hot, you know, who knows? 2023, if everyone stuck around, that UMass team would legit be like a f- – like a four seed at a minimum, right? I mean, it's not going to happen. Things are going to happen between them. But even if they're, even if some guys leave and other shit happens and they end up with a six seed or a seven seed, you know, you beat a two seed, right? Like you get hot, you have one upset, and now you're in the Sweet 16, and you know, something something happens on the other end of the bracket, and you're playing like an, you know, a, an 11 seed instead of a three, and you win that, and all of a sudden you're one game from the Final Four. So the ceiling. Like, the ceiling, ceiling, ceiling is the Final Four. The ceiling is, like, a solid A-10 title or two and, uh, you know, a heartbreaking loss in the second round or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, but but that's why the tournament's crazy because it, it gives you this, this ceiling, ceiling, ceiling. Uh... <laughs> I could go in the intro, Bennett. Um, the Woody East. Can we have three months of peace and basketball with 11, 12 guys sharing the cheddar? This is like the question everybody's asking. I've addressed it a bunch of times. Sorry, it's not it's not personal. You didn't see everybody else's question, but yeah. Fight Mass, the fine folks at Fight Mass. Which Tiger King character are you and why? You know, I've been thinking about this since the question came in. And 
in typical sage fashion, I like to, you know, vacillate a bit and kind of think on it and say, oh, I have elements of this person and uh, I have elements of that person, and uh, I'm I'm just so so subtle and, and sophisticated that, you know, I, I don't fit into one box. But the truth is, if I had to pick a real box, I think it might be the legless dude who's just kind of like on the sidelines with like pretty perceptive analysis of the whole thing. I forget his name, but he's just, he's the dude who has no legs and he's just like, look, I mean, we all knew that, you know, he was that, but if you didn't know that, or, or the lesbian woman with one arm, who's kind of, you know, like the, a little bit of the voice of reason on the sideline, but also like pretty cool and not like a total psycho, but like psycho enough that she loves the park. Cause that's kind of me and UMass basketball is like, I have a healthy ability to be ironic and detached about it all, but ultimately like I'm pretty fucking obsessed with it. You know, that's kind of that, that, and that's someone who works in that zoo. Like you gotta be a little bit of a fucking animal to work in the zoo with the animals, but you try and maintain a posture of dignity and, and kind of, uh, you know, a, a healthy, like outsider status within the craziness. So I think those would be my, those would be my, my choices. I don't remember either of their names. I still have one episode left to watch. I'm more at this point into the memes of the show than the show itself um and that should do it in the immortal words of our former co-host andrew Callagy, aka a Kalegi, for longtime listeners love you we out